Welcome back, everybody. It's a new Word Balloon, but it's Word Balloon Unconventional. It's John Suntress, and uh, this is kind of a virtue con that I am doing during the week of San Diego. You know, um, I'm not going to be there this year. Maybe some of you are not going to be there this year. And I wanted to give you that convention feel. And, uh, you know, I, I love San Diego week, whether I'm going or not. I've gone the last nine years. Sometimes, as I've said, when I'm not able to go, I feel like uh, a kid who's got a broken leg and he's up in his bedroom watching uh, everybody play on the street. You might hear me say that a couple times this week in some of my interviews. I can't remember if I did or not. But uh, I wanted to do a series of interviews that kind of reflect the panels that I love at San Diego. In many cases, our guests will be uh, promoting their panels this week at San Diego, so it's kind of a dual purpose. Uh, If you're going to the show, you might want to check these panels out. And if you're not going to the show, you're still going to enjoy these conversations. Uh, First up, you always have to go see a comic book legend at a big convention. And uh, we start things off with a great comic legend, the great Don McGregor, who uh, did so much for Black Panther. And then in the uh, 80s black and white boom, great books like Detective Zinc with Marshall Rogers, Sable with Paul Galassi, our friend Ed Cato, the man behind Captain Action these days, moderated a panel with Don interviewing him. This was back in June, and this literally will be the only convention panel this week during Word Balloon Unconventional. Then I honor the small press world with uh, Jason Inman, our buddy, who uh, used to do video for DC All Access, hosts the wonderful podcast Geek History Lesson. He and his partner Ashley Robinson show up a lot on Collider Video on YouTube. Well, Jason and Ashley also co-created Jupiter Jet, a really fun, rocketeer-style, all-ages adventure set in the 1930s with a twist. And uh, I'll let Jason talk about that, but the trade is out from Action Lab. We have a great geek conversation, not only about that, but, you know, we get into our usual pop culture stuff, things we're liking that are streaming, movie talk as well. So Don McGregor and Jason Inman for this episode of Word Balloon Unconventional. Word Balloon, of course, is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your wonderful support via Patreon. Got a few more patrons this past weekend, and uh, truly, I I thank you for your support. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you like what you hear, do you think it's uh, worth a dollar a month? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month? I try to give you the best content as far as uh, fun interviews as we get inside the minds of uh, some of our favorite creators and interesting people from the world of pop culture. So if you're interested and want to help out and subscribe to Word Balloon, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon, or you can go to the front page of wordballoon.com and just click on the Patreon ad. But thank you very much for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. All right, uh, before we get to Jason Inman, we're going to start things off with Don McGregor, again, one of the great creative voices of Marvel, and then became one of the great creator-owned geniuses back in the 80s with books like Detective Zinc. And also Sable. My buddy Ed Cato interviewed Don just a month ago. And uh, this was a great conversation. And I also want to point out, Don will be one of the guests at Terrificon uh, next month in uh, Mohegan Sun at the Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be moderating a Black Panther, Panther, uh, Black Panther panel with Don. Also Christopher Priest, Afua Richardson, and many other interesting creators. I can't wait. So uh, let's tease you with uh, what you're going to get next month at Terrificon with this great convention panel with Ed Cato and Don McGregor. Here they are now on Word Balloon. Great to be here. My name's Ed Cato. We're at Finger Lakes Comic Con. I have the distinct pleasure 
of interviewing uh, legendary writer Don McGregor. Don, good to see you. Legendary. Yeah. Capital Don't L. Don't say legendary. that about people that are dead. No, 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 no. We, we say that about those we care about. I just say a legend looking for a gig, but I'm not really looking for a gig. No, you I don't not. care now. Yeah. Leave me alone. You're past that? Oh, boy. Well, I, I, actually, about the same. I only want to do what I want to do. Yes. Isn't that the way you've always run your car? Well, yes, yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And sometimes at great cost. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're so excited to have you here. We're going to um, go as this uh, special Word Balloon podcast, and we'd love right. to talk to you about some of the things in your career and some of your thoughts about currently what you're seeing going on in fandom and especially your reaction to uh, some of the pop culture things that you had such a inspirational and uh, creative uh, 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 start for. Hold on, I'm going to get serious. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to get in my serious mode. Yes. Moment, I'm, I'm working on that. <laughs> uh, I'm totally focused on I'm really serious. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. What's your question? Then? Yeah, yeah. No, Come no. Come on, don't keep me waiting here. <laughs> Damn, the people out here, yeah. they're bored. The we, people are bored. Yeah. That little girl that she said to me, sit down. If you don't get to say cook it, I'm leaving. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. There's insurrection in the audience. Yes. Well, I love you. Don, we're we're yeah. 90 seconds in. Yeah. I've totally lost control of the interview. I'm, I'm not surprised. You weren't going to have control. I'm not going to have control. Oh my goodness. Don, well, we're 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 glad to have you here. Of course, um, first thing that we wanted to speak to you about is. Uh, You've been in this business for quite a while. Recently, you've seen a big movie based on a lot of the thoughts, creations, and ideas that you started, the Black Panther movie. And I, I, I'd love to have an open-ended question to ask you a little bit about what you think about that and what your experience has been like. Well, what my experience has been like with the movie? With the movie, with the Black Panther movie. Um, I think that really a great job with it yeah I, i've seen earlier versions they were going to do the black panther in the 1980s and 1990s when there were proposals for people who wanted to make a black panther movie and all of you out there if you like the, the, the movie that's out there now be glad they waited yeah the, i swear to god i'm not making this up the plot proposal for one of the movies i think Dwayne turner showed it to me back in the time that we were doing panthers prey yeah um and this is this is what hollywood would buy for a black character in the 1990s or late 80s. Uh, the Black Panther was a street sweeper in Harlem. What? And he has amnesia, he doesn't know that he's a king. Oh. And, uh, but he has the abilities of a cat, but he's like a cat, uh, supposedly, according to this, the, the, this proposal, cats don't like to bathe, so he never washes. He doesn't bathe because he, he dislikes water. Yeah. And this was gonna be the Black Panther movie. They would. That, that's the Black Panther movie they thought they could sell. Oh I like her. See, she's a good audience. <laughs> I'm like, the, rest the, the rest of the show is for you. <laughs> you you're, you're, also, you're, you're prettier than all the rest of them, so yeah. that's the other thing. Yes. I, I know you are. I'm sorry. I love you dearly, but really, you're not her. Yeah. Yeah, of course, Don has quite the reputation of a, a charmer. Some no. folks call him the most r romantic guy in comics. No, 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 this no, is no, Don. No, 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 no. Yes. I curse in my life. I've been shy of a woman all my life. Yes. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't. I, I just wish I would get over it. I'm yeah. going to try that. 
<laughs> yeah, I haven't seen evidence of that, but uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Uh, so, no, uh, go ahead. That's oh yeah. So that so that 1990s Panther uh, treatment never happened. No, thank yeah. God. And, but uh, AM Records also wanted to do a Panther movie. Oh really? Uh, and whatever you're dealing with Hollywood, it's you have to understand what it is they really want. Yes. In the beginning, they don't, well, you know, but you have to understand what it is they want you to give them. Because what they're telling you is not what they really want. For instance, I'm going to A&M Records. T Terry Cavanaugh was the editor for Panthers Party. He said, we're getting contacted by A&M Records. I'm interested in doing a Panther movie. Yeah. So I go over, I had two or three meetings with the woman who wanted to do this. And yeah, we really want to do the Black Panther. And, you know, you're the guy that's writing it right now. And uh, we want, you know. You to help us put it together, and uh, and so we had like two or three meetings, mm. yeah. and 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 she was really pushing to have this done, and about that time John Singleton ended up on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh yeah, wearing a Black Panther hat with Dwayne Turner artwork from our book. Oh yeah, on it. Now, on those talk shows, nothing like that happens by accident. Right. And that's because John really wanted to do the a Black, Black Panther. Movie. Yeah. So he had a separate one going on. Yeah. And there were, so there were different people. But what did A&M Records, why did they really want to do, they basically do records, why did they really want to do a Black Panther movie? What, it finally came out, Janet Jackson sings for A&M Records. They were looking for a film property for Janet Jackson. Monica Lynn is a black singer. Huh. So really, the thrust that they really wanted was a vehicle for Janet Jackson. Wow. Now, you don't learn that until you're like five meetings down in, you know, in two or three months of meetings. Yeah. Somebody, oh, wait a minute. I see what this, oh, I see yeah. what this is really all about. Oh, so that's wow. what I mean where you don't, you're trying to piece together what is it that these people really want and what do they really want you to do. Yeah. Right, and right. they will continually change their mind with the weather. Whatever they think is popular at the moment. Yeah. You know, I do a character called Saber. Yes. And there's been interest in doing Saber as a movie upon occasion. Part of the problem with doing Saber as a, as, as a movie is that at its core is a love story and it's highly sexual between a black man and a white woman. Yes. And it was controversial in 1976. And it's still, you know, while it's not as dicey as it was... It being what Saber is, because it's so, it's got gay characters, it's got transsexuals. Right. And, and, like, time is caught up with the, it's like perfect for this. Yeah. Now, I don't know about film, I think HBO or Showtime yeah. or something. Probably handled, uh, you know, a lot better. Uh, but I think at that time, well, there was, you know, there were real problems getting uh, Saber put through. So, but there was a, an agent that was interested in doing Saber. And Mike Grella told me, oh, this guy, he gets it done. He'll, he, he works at film, and he understands comics. So I'm meeting with the agent, and the agent says to me, well, Don, um, I want to do your young Saber. I want to, I want to you know, and do this franchise. The, the adventures before Saber right. in the comics. Because in the comics, he's already pretty much established. He's like in his early, he's in his early 20s, yeah. early to mid 20s. So he's already, you know, pretty much an established character. But there's a lot of background that I had not yet. Sometimes I would go and do flashbacks in the books, and I intended yeah. over time to keep going back, and we would like find out why does Midnight Storm really? Why is she so angry with Saber? Right. Why does she hate him? 
Right. You know, why? How did Melissa and Saber first meet? Yeah. And all these different characters. And so I intended to handle it. I said, well, I could do Young Saber. We'll just take all his origin stories, put them in one book, and the audience will be able to see it. And it, it'll be like the how all these characters got together and set up stuff for well, the books. It was yeah. wasn't going to violate anything that was in the series, mm-hmm. and we'd have a new series to do. And I, I said I could I could read that easily. So I start working on Young Saber. Yeah. Now, what year would this have been? Uh, this is eighties, nineties. No, this is later. This is this is later. I don't know. In the 2000s. Oh, 2000s, yeah. I, I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. It's kind of funny. This is exactly what goes on with um, Bo Smith's Winona Earp property, right? So it has a property, and the, 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 the filmed version is the earlier version. So, anyway, it, you know, I'm working on Young Saber, and then, uh, I don't know. Apparently, Sam Jackson was looking for a, a franchise. Oh. And everybody wants to be in a superhero franchise. So, uh, the agent called me and said, Hey, uh, Sam Jackson's interested in doing a, a franchise. Let's do this for Sam Jackson. Yeah. I said, Sam Jackson can't play young Saber. He, he play old Saber. Right. You want to do the, but that's not the same. He's not the same person. <laughs> when he's when he's in his teens, when he's on flying skateboards, mooning the politicians because he thinks they can take a joke. Oh yeah. And that really, I, he he's just a young guy, like, you know. Yanking the strings of the politicians, not realizing they're going to take it really serious. And the more publicity that he gets, the more he becomes known, the more they want him out of the way because he's 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 a rebel. He doesn't fit in with it, and he's like making fun of their institutions. Yeah, and it's becoming more and more. Uh, the the government is having is becoming more and more severe in controlling the yeah. public. Yeah, and. When we finally do the second story line with Joyful Slaughter. Right. By the way, is my favorite villain that I've ever created. Oh, really? Yeah. Because Joyful's running on a strict death penalty platform for president. Yeah. And he's going to execute Saber over Old Faithful and spread it and share it all over the all over the country, all over the world. And like, look, I I'm executing people over over Old Faithful. Every hour, we will put another body right. on top of Old Faithful, and and it'll draw the tourists as well. <laughs> And I'm thinking I'm being outrageous, and you know, I swear to God, God, the fucking world is catching up with me. I go, yeah. please, please. Yeah, right. Saber is... Uh, uh, by the way, did, he, did I just curse on there? Because that's You can curse on this show. Oh, yep. thank yep. God. Yes, yes. No, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, so Saber is uh, post-apocalyptic. Thank God the little girl's left. Yes. But uh, you feel almost as is caught up, the... the Joyful Slaughter is almost like a current politician in many ways, right? I, I, obviously, that story would fit in so well right now. And when yeah. they actually come in to, to, to you know, to uh, basically stamp out the voices that are, you know, because Saber's defending this settlement that's been based around Disney World. Disney World is collapsed. <laughs> and, and the bad guys have taken it over. Right. And so that's their kind of their headquarters. Oh, Disney will love me for that. Yeah. But that's another story. Yeah, right. Right, right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Saber was an extension from War of the Worlds. Yes. And But I could take the Marshes out, and with Saber, it was like, to me, it was purer because it's just a guy who becomes this target for larger organizations. And really, all he wants to do as he gets older, he wants to have 
He wants to be with a woman he loves. Yes. He wants to raise a family. He wants to keep his word and his word of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and but he's it's and it, it, part of the story is a, a love story about two people trying to keep that love alive in a world that's gone crazy. Yeah, sure. I was always impressed how Saber started with very much a romantic story, full right. of full of love and passion, and quickly progressed into real-world things like being a father and, you know, uh, uh, keeping up with it. Well, everything. that became a really big problem because in 1976 when I wrote it, I didn't see print until 78 because the artist held it up for two years uh, and he did not want Melissa pregnant. Yeah. And we started to refuse to finish drawing the book. This is like the, this is like the difference in time periods of pop culture. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to survive economically because I'm now, like... Marvel and I have fought bitterly over the Black Panther. Yes. And doing the Ku Klux Klan material, which was my total... And the people have said, uh, did that hurt your career, Marvel? You mean outside of killing it? <laughs> yeah. Now, there, there's always a story floating Not around. That's the way they would phrase it, but... Yeah. Yeah, the story always was that they said, do you need to put more white people into Black Panther? And you said, sure, I got a story for you. No, it was, I mean, I literally, every issue of Panthers Rage, just about, one of the main things, they, they continually wonder white people. And it was their, I said, it's your mythology. You said Wakanda is a super secret society. Nobody knows where it is. They can't find it. They've got the technology to keep people out. Now, remember, maybe only six to eight stories have been done set in Wakanda yeah. at that time frame. And none of it had really gone outside the explodable content. So, like, I mean, I literally spent three months creating maps for content in all the different places that they were going to go. Right. To. I had to have that to do the storyline I wanted to do. I yeah. had to know it. You had to create the reality of the place so that when you got there, people would say, oh, and I think it makes it more real to them. Mm-hmm. And it really got to when I was doing conventions like this. And meeting people at the, you know, doing shows or, or with people coming up to the table asking questions, and and uh, uh, there a lot of things to get used to. Then it, it, it was so popular when people would come up, and I think maybe if writers are often like uh, second-class citizens. Yeah, how's that? It's a very art-oriented medium. People tend to talk about the artists, but writers seldom get the same kind of uh, power that the artists. Sure. Um, but at, the same, at that time, I think both Steve Gerber and I had sort of this. Don McGregor books were, they weren't anybody but Don McGregor books. Just like no. The Steve, Steve Gerber book wasn't anything but Steve. Yeah, you had such a so unique people voice. People would come up and they had been following every book you've done for one, two years. So you're meeting people who feel they know you intimately. If, you've, if you're writing personally and, you know, um, in these books, they feel they know you. Yes. I, I would have people come up and tell me stuff that, you know, I probably wouldn't tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> right, know, like, right. Uh, although sometimes I've been on stage and go, oh, my God, I didn't, mean to, I didn't know I was going to get into this. <laughs> this. This story's got no good ending. Yeah. Um, so what, in meeting, meeting the people that way, I mean, literally, sometimes they would tell you really private and sometimes really painful stuff yeah. because they related so much. And, but getting used to the fact that you had never met these people before, they're standing on that side of the table, and suddenly they're, they're just pouring their lives out to you. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of your, your writing was very much uh, um, 
full of a lot of passion and personal insights. It wasn't just a good guy hitting a bad guy well, or going on an adventure. To I, I often try to tell the people, don't confuse the writer with the human being. The human being like stumbles over his shoelaces. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can't, can't do hardly anything right. Um, the writer tries to weed all that out. And yeah. tries to, you know... Uh, get everything as, as as close to what I hoped it could be and envisioned it. Yeah, sure. And it's not like daily life. So. Yeah, yeah. One time uh, Nelson DeMille, the fiction writer, was speaking, and he said, uh, someone said, boy, I love the way your character has all those quips, like right off the cuff. He's like, yeah, it takes me three days to re write <laughs> each of those. You know, it's, it's not it's spontaneous in real life. Yeah, yeah um, let me touch on one thing with Sabre, Don. You talk about how it's a story of a of a man and a woman and, and the things that go on, but that that series, which in many ways seems very short by today's standards, was just layered with so many characters. Every character with a with a clever name and with a rich backstory. Can you speak a little bit to the things you were trying to accomplish and the way you juggle all the different characters and what they mean and what they do? Okay, let me let me just start and keep me on track. I, I may. That's I, quite I, a I'll task. Get, yeah, I know. Yeah. I'll try to get back to it, but it, because one thing influences another, it isn't yes. just one thing, and that's the reason uh, that that got done. When the Black Panther and Kill River were ending, and I was leaving Marvel Comics, and it was uh, it was a pretty dramatic time in my life. I'd been I'd gone through a divorce by the time the books were ending. I was going to child custody courts to make sure I could see my daughter. Um, money was tight. Sure. Uh, and it was taking a long time to uh, produce Saber. When I first had the idea of, of doing, I, I felt like I was a slow writer, and I, and I really wanted to have complete say over my books. And, uh, and I wanted to own the characters. I, I was tired of writing everything where I... Like, the first issue of the Black Panther that, that were, I created, Killmonger, did the match for Wakanda. I got yeah. paid $168 for it. Yeah. They owned everything. And there were times where my wife and my kids had to do without things because I'm having trouble like just getting through that time period. Sure. People don't understand the cost that, that can have on you and the scars and wounds that it can leave with. Sure. So I, I thought, okay, you know, I really... I want, I want to do my own character, and I come up with Saber, and, and that's all inspired by an Errol Flynn movie called The Seahawk. Sure. Yeah. And I'm watching this movie one night, and I said, wait a minute. This should be about a black guy, not a white guy. He's a, he's a, he's a slave aboard a, you know, a, a rowing ship, and then they take him to a plantation, and they're whipping him to get him to do work. I said, wait a minute. And then he needs a rebellion. Yeah. I said, this should be, they've never done... Uh, you know, a, 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 a black character that's, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, I just I can't think of the term. Yeah, well, he was so, like, charismatic, Errol Flynn's breakout role, well, of course. Kind of thing. I wanted to do uh, uh, that kind of character. It had never been done before. Yeah. Huh? You sank the Black Rebellion in Puerto Rico? or No, I, um, I, 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 I can't think of the term right now, but at any rate, my thought was like, if I can, I want to do that kind of character, and I've never seen a black character done that way. And I yeah. thought Saber can be, um, reflect on all the things about going on in society, 
at the time that I saw and then projected in front yeah. of my head. At that time you were but, in New York. But I see, I was like, in the beginning, I really wanted to do a, a series called Ragamuffins about little kids growing up in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And I always had that. I had that plan since before I was even working at Marvel Comics, probably wow. before I was working at, at Warren. Um, I wanted to do that series, but I realized coming up, I couldn't come off the superhero stuff and the science fiction stuff. People already forgot I had done all these horror stories for Warren. They, and they knew me for the science fiction material. And I'm talking about, I think we could do a book for the, indie, for the comic book stores. Because yeah. nobody had done this before. Yeah. People in the industry thought I was crazy. Is it? <laughs> Don, it's a, such a small percentage of our audience, the comic book stores can't support a book. I thought if you gave them a writer and an artist whose names they knew and you gave them something they couldn't get anywhere else. Yes. That there was an audience there. Yeah. Did I know it for sure? No, how could I know it for sure? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I could be as crazy as they thought I was. Yes. On top of that, then people say, well, Don, who's going to book, buy a book about a black guy with a lot of guns? Yeah. You know, and I, so, well, I hope somebody's out there that's going to buy the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, 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 so, but, so I said, I can't do Ragamuffins first. They want people, and I want to do Detectives Incorporated because I love Private Eyes. Yeah. And I had done, my first comic was a 1969 edition of, of Detectives Incorporated. With Alex. First time I ever met uh, Marshall Rogers when I was working on staff at Marvel. They didn't give him work. But I said to Marshall, I got this series of mine to do uh, of my own. And like, years later, of course, Marshall ended up drawing. Yeah, absolutely. But I said, even the private eye thing, I, it's got to be a costume hero. And, but I said to Dean, if I'm not going to break every rule in the book, and then Saber breaks every rule that you could yeah. do, you, you could never do Saber at DC. Just, they just, they couldn't handle that yeah. material. No, no. Was was Dean the publisher of Eclipse who well, Dean, partnered with you here? I met Dean through the letters pages of the Black Panther Kill Every. He's a big fan of the books. And then we got to be friends. Yeah. I met him at a convention and um, at those days I was collecting sixty millimeter films. And so he was probably over watching an old I Spy or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I Spy and was we your favorite. We to dinner together and I don't know. And I had shown him a drawing for Saber. And then Dean calls me like two nights later and said, Don, I wanna I want to do Saber. So yeah. what do you mean you want to do Saber? I want to publish Saber. See, you don't publish comics. <laughs> said, yeah, but I want to start my own company. I said, well, you know, I want I want all my rights. You got it, Don. And I, you know, I want finals. Nobody can change my copy but me. Right. Okay. I think I had a half dozen things I said of him, and then Dean said, he kept saying, yeah, yeah. I said, you better come on over. We better talk. <laughs> um, it's 40 years later, more than 40. We're still best buddies. This is a business that can break people apart. just like snapping somebody's spine. Uh, and we're still, I just got a phone call from, from Italy at my hotel yesterday. Yes. And that's, you know, I just wrote a piece on him. I don't think people appreciate that Dean opened up this medium to do stories. I, I could never have done gay. I had gay characters planned for the Black Panther, but I could never have gotten them through. Getting the interracial kiss through at Marvel mm. was a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. I mean, you know, I, 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 I think I, there's I, a story how you engineered that that's yeah. been floating around a few years. Did, well, didn't you kind of... Uh, 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 you knew the way Stan operated, and, and, and somehow you pushed that uh, interracial kiss through? Well, it, see, again, 
pop culture was in a much different place. Yes. Now, at least, at least publicly, it would want to appear that they're um, accepting of people of different persuasions, you know. Uh, Thank you. But in those days, not so much. Yes. If there was a problem with an all-black cast of characters in the Black Panther, I had in mind that I was going to take Camilla Frost and Mashula, and they was going to get them together as characters. Yeah. And every issue, there was a scene with them talking. Yes. And... Um, and I was about to quit, quit the book. I get called to the, I, I was called in almost every book. Don, come into the office. And if they shut the door, you know, like, oh, it's trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's trouble. Yeah. Well, I don't know what it is. Yeah. What is it this time? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm told the other is going to quit the book. And what's so if I'm doing the salt and pepper? That's their, their the uh, euphemism for a, uh, a relationship. And, and I know it's too early. That if I tell them I am doing it, they're going to tell me no. And the problem is if they tell you no and you try to do it anyhow, you'll never get it into print. Yeah. And it's an open act of defiance. Yes. So then if I'm already on, you know, if I'm already on their questionable list, I'm not going to get it through. You got to find, it's not enough to want to do it. How do I get it out so that you folks can see it? Mm-hmm. And it gets to be a reality in comics. So I kept baiting the readers so that the readers would start bugging me for when are you gonna let these two get together? Oh, yeah. But when I got asked by the editor if I was doing it, I didn't lie. I just said, well, and you have to put it in terms that you know they can understand. And at the time, Modesty Blaze was a very big comic strip yes. produced in England with a, a female lead, and and Willie Govan is the guy who's like her sidekick right. and follows her around. She's like a super spy. Right. And it's a good series. That's great. Yeah. I met Peter O'Donnell, I, I, and I like the series a lot. So I said, well, it's just modesty plays. It's just they, they're like fighting companions, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I didn't deny I was going to take it there, and I just kept baiting it every issue. Oh, my God. Because they weren't reading, they, they didn't have time to read those books. Those books weren't important. Yeah. Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Thor, those books weren't important. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is the only reason I was able to, to, to get to that point. Oh, then the readers would start saying, what are you, geez, now, what are you doing? What's your problem? And so then I, but see, then you have to follow protocol. Could I have just gone to stand? Yes, I could have. But if I, if I, if I skip editorial just to go to stand. It's not going to be good. That's, that, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the end of any kind of civility between people at all. Yeah. So I know I need to go through that. So then I have to go through editorial, saying I want to meet with Stan, I want to talk about doing an interracial... Um, interracial kiss. In, you know, in Killing. Yeah. And uh, so they set it up, and there's a, a meeting. There always has to be a meeting of these kind of things. And so... Um, I know Stan is, is concerned, oh, well, I, I, you know, I don't want the PTA in the South somewhere to see it. It could be a problem. People wouldn't want but it, but, you know, and, and she, can't, she, can't she be green, Don? <laughs> uh, you know, she's white. When I, what can I tell you, Stan? I, yeah. it is, and so, uh, so there's, you know, I, I, there's, there's this hesitation being expressed. But I knew that Stan really did want Marvel to be first. He really, honestly and sincerely, he liked them to do stuff before DC would. Yeah. And to be honest, they, Marvel would normally do things. DC would follow later on. Right. So I, I said to Stan, well, you know, Stan, 
I know you always wanted Marvel to be first doing these things, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm hearing rumors that DC is going to do a romance comic, and they're going to have an interracial kiss in one of their, their romance comics. And I really hate to see DC do that. But, oh, no, I don't want that done. <laughs> so then, <laughs> oh, so then um, they said, okay, you can do it. <clears throat> But the panel where they kiss has to be in knockout colors. What's, what's knockout uh, colors, in, man? In, in comics, that means like everybody would in, be in shades of blue. Yeah. So that nobody could take that page out of that panel and point at it and say, I guess that was their reasoning. Uh, you mean like a newscaster in the South or so, something? Oh, could going to be in knockout that, colors. Now, knockout. I don't know what happened. You know, I'm, I'm just a writer. Yes. What do I know? So I write the issue and Greg <laughs> Russell's drawing it and... I get called in the editor's office again, you know, and then the door shuts, <laughs> and then they open up the book and they go, Don, look at this thing here, this panel, you get the kitchen, and it said full color, how did, how did, it is, seriously, yeah, look at it, it's right here, what the, how'd that happen, wow, well, you know, it doesn't look that bad, it looks pretty good to me, now, the bottom line to all of that story is, the, the sky did not fall in on their heads. Mm. The world did not end, right. and comics opened up so that could now, it was going to be less of a struggle. If you wanted to do something more, you could start to deal with it. It was going to be easier for the next people that wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that's always been. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now it's it seems like, and and this is from speaking with you just the other day, too, that a lot of your uh, uh, tolerance and, and comfortableness with, with black folks and white folks uh, um, doing things together, either a relationship or friendships, came from the I Spy, which you ho hold in high regard. And, and that I was a... You can find it on my website. I know there's a piece, there's like five pieces on I Spy. One yeah. called Love It for a Sight. Yes. <laughs> I think the first time I saw a couple of Cosby together, it, it didn't really have to do with the fact that uh, Robert Cobb was white and Bill Cosby was black. I mean, that obviously was history. Yes. Um, it was the relationship between these two guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the easy chemistry between them. I, I, yeah, I like Robert Redford and I like Paul Newman. Um, but, you know, if you talk about them with the screen chemistry between those, they're, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. I'm not... But there's no couple Cosby. Right. These guys are like, and they were breaking history. I mean, it was just that this show got on the air at all at that time because it had never, uh, there had been no black heroes. Yeah. On, and, and you know, it was like, and, and Bob Culp fought all the time to keep Bill an equal mm, on yeah. the show. Not as, as if you ever see the original pilot to uh, Spy, it's not Shuttle on the side Spy. Yeah. Bill is definitely. A second, he's def, he, he's a secondary character to Kelly Roberts. Yeah. Bob Cup goes out and writes one to make sure that they're together. They're the two of them are equal. Yeah. You know? And they were going to let love interest be for Alexander Scott. Well, then Bob wrote one with Eartha Kitt so that they could do a love. Because once you break those barriers down, it gets easier to do it the next time. Around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a constant fight about, you know, doing gay characters. And we were talking about Saber earlier because I knew I was going to be putting gay characters in there. And 
Um, I think I told you, I might have told you the story the other day. Yeah. Like, by the time Issue 7 came out of, of Saber, and for me, that's when the, the series really stopped. Yeah. Saber was getting back just in time for the babies being born. Yes. And Dean Mullaney's brother, Jan, he was the one who would pick up the artwork for Billy Graham. Billy was drawing it. Yeah. And I chose it, Billy, because I knew, unlike the artist that you'd drawn Saber earlier, I knew I was going to have transsexuals in there. We're talking 1981 to 83. Again, it's a different time period, and nobody and nothing in comics is even coming close to handling anything like this. No. But I said to Dean, like, if, if I'm going to do a costume hero, because we went to, and I, I was shelving Ragabuffs, I was shelving Detectives Incorporated. Coming back to Saber, that's, that's how Saber really begins. Mm. I knew I had to do a costume character. That's what people wanted to see from me. And the, the big difference was it wasn't going to be a, a regular series. It was 38 pages. In that 38 pages, I could do anything I wanted. Yeah. But it's 38 pages. Right. So I'm, I, I really, and you better have something to deliver. We were asking $6 for a comic book in 1978. Sure. And so this is at the very cusp of the independent market well, selling to Well, it's actually the real beginning of it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we sold out. Think with, I think we had a second edition out within two or three months. Wow. Because um, well, nobody knew if the book was going to go. Yeah, yeah. You you and really launched so Eclipse with that, and well, then and others then the would follow. Steve Gerber. I could finance Stuart Durant and Steve Gerber. Right. Steve Collin did, and Craig Russell did Night Music. Yeah. And my note, I, I can't remember all of it. And then finally, I think the fourth one was... And then I could do Detectives. Right, yeah. So there was a point where you were doing Saber See, and Detectives. then I could do gay characters. In Detectives Incorporated, I could do gay characters. Yes. And and that was the first time it had ever been done. Again, it was like I only had 46 pages. And one of my favorite reviews I've ever gotten is from a gay critic who understood that I only had 46 pages. Most people reviewing comics don't really understand you've got to contend with the format you're given. Yeah. For instance, if I'm doing the Black Panther and this is a bi-monthly book, if I write a character out for one issue, and if I write Wakabi out for one issue, mm-hmm. and if I write Taco out for one issue, that's four months between times where people see that character. Right. Two books is half a year. That's a long time to ask people to care about those characters. Sure. And if there's a, the only thing that I know that really draws people back into a book is if they care about those people. They want to see what happens to those characters next. Yeah. So if you're doing a single book that's only got 38 pages, it's going to try to have the weight of a Panther's Rage, which is 200 and some pages, sure. or a Kill Raven that lasted for you know three years. And in 38 pages, you better give the audience something because they're looking to see what is Doc going to rest on his laws? What is he going to do? Is he just going to do the same old thing he was doing before? It it, it better have something. That's indeed, as far as I'm sure, Saber has to break every rule that's in Costume Hero yeah, yeah. And so the fact was, it wasn't going to be a hero. It was like, love him and leave him. Yeah. Uh, as other people wanted. That's not my character. And it's not what I'm interested in writing. Mm-hmm. And so Saber reflected the things I really wanted to write about and what I saw going on in society. When you talk about the separate names, um, and it became a pain in the ass. It was like, because everybody had to have a name that was kind of reflective of their personalities or how they saw themselves. That gave you distinctive names for the covers for doing a costume hero kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that, let me just pause. In that mythology, there was a point in the in the future where people decided that they would rename themselves. So you'd right. get names they, like yeah. yes. 
Uh, Crimson Dawn or Crimson Dawn Black Star Blood or yeah. Midnight Storm or yeah and the names are always summarized or deuces wild and the names are always a little bit if it was like Joyful Slaughter because Joyful really like killing people yeah he had no problem with that yeah you yeah know? so I I, 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 still, I still get a kick out of Joyful oh yeah I, I love the conversation between him and you know and him and Saber because there's it, there's just it's so wild and crazy and yet uh, it, it can't compete with the real world. Oh yeah, it's getting crazier all the time. I always, I always pictured he's he pronounced Saber's name straight, like Sabri or Sabri. Sabri, yes, yeah. Always called him Sabri. Yeah. Um, but I think in in that book, I, then I could do gay characters. Yeah. And then like baby, like I started to tell the story about Jan getting the artwork on the issue where the baby's born. Yeah. And Jan picks the artwork up and. Uh, when he comes out to me, he goes, Don, you, you have the babies being born on panel. You can see the babies coming out. And I said, well, Jen, a lot of what this book is about is that society's values are all askew. You have a problem with babies being born. But there's a war going on around the see Arms are being blown off. People are being mutilated. People are being, you know, murdered. Uh, ask me to act, take one act of violence out of this book. I'll take any act of violence out you want. Because that's what this book is about. And the next batch of pages that Jan has to pick, and then Jan says, Don, it's your book. You're going to read it by t- sales, 10,000 copies. It's always 10,000 copies. <laughs> Whether it's big copies, small copies, it's 10,000. I don't know how You're going to scale somewhere. There's 10,000 copies if you do this. That's it. You're going you're gonna to kill You're going to kill our book. You're going to kill your book. It doesn't matter. So the next batch of pages that uh, Jan picks up from Billy Graham is two men kissing. This has not been done in right, American sure. comics. So Billy calls it up to tell me, uh, Don, Jen picked up the album, he's on his way out to you in Brooklyn. <laughs> I said, yeah. This seems like a variation of being pulled into the office with the door shutting. Well, no, because I, I, no, it's, it's my book. Yeah. No matter what, I, it really, it doesn't matter what anybody says. <laughs> Good for you. It's my book. Yeah. So Billy goes, I said, yeah. And so Billy goes, um, well, he saw the two guys kissing Don. I said, yeah. And what did he say? <laughs> I said, well, yeah. He, uh, he looked down at the artwork. And then he looked up at me. And then he looked back at the artwork again. <laughs> and then he looked up at me. <laughs> And then he looked down the hour for a long time, and then finally he said, I guess there's no sense of talking to Don about that. <laughs> I knew you well. He knew you well. And then very quickly after that, I think there was a sequence with a, a woman with bare breasts, but it wasn't sexualized. She was breastfeeding, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, it's, it's a natural thing. And in fact, I know I have some where Melissa squirts breast milk into Saber's eye. Yes. Right, <laughs> uh, yeah. But what I really want to get is that, especially I, women very often are much more playful about sex than men are. Mm-hmm. And that these people could be together and be a mother and father, but still be playful and still be loving with each other. Yeah. Still be sexually attracted to each other. And this had not been done. Well, I... It was. It was, certainly wasn't commonplace in comics. If it had been done in other places, I don't know where it would be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly in Prince Valiant, you would have 
uh, because a lot another aspect of Saber is Prince Valiant. Yeah, yeah, you talked it's a little bit about a love story about a man and a woman trying to raise a family in a world where everything else is the, 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 the defense of the world around us are always going crazy. Yeah, right. And maybe crazier now, or maybe we just see more of it because we got so much, you know, so many, you know, TVs and, 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 and the internet and, you know, cell phones and it's bombarding us with it. I don't know. Yeah. But by the way, that was part of the, the one of the part, like doing the names of Saber. It was a pain in the neck because anybody that walked on, they, well, you couldn't even want somebody just Sam. Right. <laughs> it's, they'd no, stand I mean, out. Everybody's like, uh, you know, like, uh, well, what's this? Gary said so this person character is Gary Deckers. This is Wiener Neverhard. This yeah, is yeah, <laughs> right. Well, what's this person's name? Well, see, so it really you kind of raised the bar yourself. Yeah, it really became a challenge. Yeah, but you only have yourself to blame for that. Um, I, it's like really reflective of like at the internet now when you see people have all these names they give themselves. Sure. If you think about it. And what have they done? Exactly what people are doing in Saber, they're just not doing it through the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, I never thought of that. That's a great, that's a great But one. I, I realized that at some point, that, oh, look at this. This person's called, because they want to be that, or they want to protect themselves yeah. as being that. And so I always found that kind of... Uh, yeah, you know, oh, that's, that's great. You know, Don, I want to talk to you a little bit about this book, uh, Dragon Flame, which was kind of a a breakthrough book at that time, published not by a big publishing firm, but some very uh, personal stories, some very adventurous the, stories. The ad for the story was, buy this book or the comics industry will shoot this author. Yes. With a 357 Magnum pointed to my head. And you, you Roy are, Thomas, no matter what he says these days, uh, and he's in print saying, so I'm safe to say this, if I see that photograph one more time, I'll pull the trigger myself. <laughs> you marketed it hard. You got him. You got him. This was a, a good project for you? You liked it? Absolutely. It was a, it was a breakthrough product, project for me in, in, in a lot of ways. One, Dave Kraft got me to, he wanted me to write an introduction for it. Yeah. And I didn't want to write an introduction. I, I was reluctant at first. Um, while I did all my own letters pages, there was always a, a, a like an editorial we. So even though I was answering the letters to the Black Panther or to Kill Raven, and you were getting my personal views on it, it still was that editorial we. Mm -hmm. And there was always like a barrier between me. I wasn't used to saying I. I feel this. I think this. I want this. Whatever it is. And so I wasn't used to doing it. And I thought, oh, well, I, and I, I don't. I don't feel that the stories need to be explained. Mm -hmm. However, because the stories are written at different points in my life, once Dave convinced me to do the, uh, the introduction, and Dave probably then thought, oh, I created a Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Uh, I said, okay, Dave, I'll write the introduction for every one of the stories. Yeah. Because they were from different time periods in my life. So it, it gave you background, not to what the stories meant or what you should think about them, but where I was at the time that I wrote them. Yeah, I think maybe when you mentioned before about how your fans feel very close and reveal things about themselves, I, I wonder if things like this really help facilitate that because well, you're, yeah, you're so I, uh, giving. This is one of the, now, this is what things that you learn as you're doing this, and they're not things you would ever think about before, but when I wrote this book, I was in the midst of going through the divorce, stuff happening with my daughter, so the stories about not being able to afford... Well, actually, I think that's a the virus. 
another, the second book I did. Yeah. Uh, not being able to afford to buy her a Christmas tree. Yes. And thinking, I'll, 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 I'll give Marvel anything I want. Tell me, you guys, what, what is it you want me to do? I'll do it. Um, because I want to buy this little girl. Yeah. She's five, six years old at the time. Um, and some people say, way down, if every story you wrote, like, uh, Lord and the Christmas Trees was as good as that, you'd be a pretty good writer. No, they're um, But the thing about this book was, it's so personal, especially oh, yeah. in the introductions. Yeah. But it's where I was at at the time I was writing it. Yeah. By the time the book came out, I don't know how much time had passed, so by the time I was meeting people, the people had a chance to read the book, they're still seeing the Don McGregor that's in the midst of going through a divorce and going through child custody courts. And, yeah. So it's a very traumatic, emotional time for me. By that time, I'm like with Marsha. I'm, I'm, I'm having sex every day. And I'm, I'm going through Manhattan. <laughs> it takes us 15 minutes to walk a block. And I'm, I'm having a great You're time. You're in a much better part. So, I'm, so it's really strange because to them, this is where I am right now. But no, actually, I'm over here now. Oh, yeah. And so it was very, you know, that you wow, oh, that time lapse kind of thing is just, that was something uh, unique to Yeah. You yeah, I, I remember there, there, there's a, another line where you talk about with your daughter and you talk about the um, the impending deadline is the weekend for visitation ends. And as a divorced dad, I, I remember connecting with that, you know, years and years just resonates on such a personal level. Yeah. And Lauren and I are still close. Yeah. You know, I can't say how she uses these days because she killed me. But um, she... Lorna, Lauren would, for a while, she dressed as Lady Rawhide. She would come to conventions with me. And that, it was not my idea yeah. that, that for Lauren to, she was, she and Marsha came up with that, not me. Yeah. Um, I, I was just glad that my daughter liked to be with me and uh, yeah. still wanted to do things with me. I'm still close with my son, with my daughter. And, yeah. You know, I, um, I can't imagine my life without Lauren in it. Oh, that's very sweet. The first saber is dedicated to her. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the second one's dedicated to my son, and the third one's dedicated to my wife. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it covers all fields. You, you've got a lot of deep passions. I, I did want to touch on, on Zorro and Lady Rawhide and some of that. And also, I understand you're a big Western fan. Was that a part of why you love Zorro so much and... and if you can uh, tell me a little bit about that particular... Uh, uh, well, I know they're always saying they have to reinvent the Western. <clears throat> yeah. But really, if you look at... The Western's like any other genre. There's, there's stuff that's really good and there's stuff that's okay. And it, and it depends on what it appeals to you. Sure. <clears throat> I'm not saying that I always can live up to all these ideas, but... Like, Hopalong Cassidy was like a second father to me. Yeah. Then I got to meet his wife and his widow and get to be friends with Grace in later years. It's like one of the treasures uh, of my life. Yeah. She's everything Mrs. Hopalong Cassidy you, you, she could, you could possibly want. She yeah. Was just, she was just great. Yeah. Um, and, and Hopalong and it's... Thing, like, basically, you know, if you gave your word, you kept it. Yeah. You didn't sign a piece of paper. Yeah. You said you're going to do it, you do it. Uh, if a friend is in trouble and you can help out and there's a way for you to help out, then you try to do it. If something bad really is happening, you don't turn your head and look the other way and pretend you didn't see it. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I, you know, you don't betray mm -hmm. people that you love. I mean, so those things always 
they're a part of me. I'm not saying I always live up to them. I'm not saying that I, I'm, you know, but uh, did I love that about the Hopalong Cassidy character and the personality of William Boyd himself? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Later on, um, but this is one of the things I love about Zoe. What is Zoe? But Zoe sticks up for, he's in a, an oppressive society. Yeah. In, in, you know, early Los Angeles, California. And again, the military is in charge. Mm-hmm. They can be as corrupt or as, as uh, authoritarian as they want and, and abuse their power. Yeah. Um, and Saber, I mean, <laughs> Sorry. let's say, some Saber, similarities. Saber, but um, Zoe is like, you know, the guy's going to come in and say, no, I'm not going to let people victimize yeah. the Indians or, or, or victimize uh, the people who don't have money. Uh, so that, I think that character resonates all the way through. And the great thing about Zoe is his personality. The one thing when Mike Mayhew first started to draw the Zoe comics, I, I kept telling him, despite the fact that they keep putting in the movies that the Batman is influenced by Zoe, Zoe is not the Batman. Mm-hmm. This guy has a sense of humor. He has a real zest for life. Yeah. And you need to capture that. Stop with the grim expressions. He's smiling when he's not fighting. Sure. He's like, and this only displays his opponents even more. So there are a lot of things I really love. I love the Disney Zoll. And like one of my requirements was, can I do the Disney Zoll people? And I asked this of John Gertz at Zoll Productions. He said, yeah, I have the rights to do everything. Because if I can't do Captain Monasterio, if I can't do Sergeant Garcia, I don't want to do it. Oh, yeah. And I had an okay to do all of that, so I said, well, all right, let's go and let's do this thing. But you expanded so much. Again, so many great villains and secondary characters in your Zorro series. Well, one of the things, like, it was certainly the creation of Lady Rawhide. Yeah. Um, because it was a monthly book, and I was putting Jim off because. And that's Jim Salakrup? Yes, Jim Salakrup had approached me about doing so. And I, he knew I loved so. Yes. And I, I. It would be steady work. That was a good thing. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if I said yes to it, it was going to. I knew myself well enough as a writer by then. This would be. Zoe would suddenly become a large part of my life. Yeah. And did I want to commit that much of my life where every day I'm, you know, three quarters of what I write or more will be just all. Yeah. And it was going to take a lot of research to do it. So, and in and and going through this all stuff, what did I like? What did, did I? And one of the things was that women, they weren't, women either, they were duenas and they were in the hacienda or right. they were barmaids and. I said, no, I, I can't write a monthly book and not have any women in it. There's got to be some women characters. If there's no women in the book, I can't write it. <laughs> Good for you. You figured out so a way. So then I thought, okay, so there's got to be a character in there that can be Zorzi. Yeah. And that every time she's on the scene, you maybe she's going to steal the scene from him. Yeah. You know, and so... I mean, I worked with Mike a lot on Lady Rock. I, I had a completely different design for her outfit. And when I saw it, it made more sense. To be honest, it was more realistic. Mm. I said, Mike, it's, it's just not sexy enough. It's just not dynamic enough. Um, I really wanted, whenever she whenever she appears, man, you're like, you're aware she's there. Right. And we could comment upon, the, and one of the other things I really wanted to get at is that 
limited comics normally were allowed to look sexy, but they weren't allowed to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Lady Rawhide is sexual. Yes. She has, you know, she has a sexual uh, identity and, and, and lusts and... Uh, I wanted a character that could express that. Yeah. And, and, and at the risk that it would cost her, because as a woman in her time frame, uh, even a brother could have a sent to a convict. Yeah. And, you know, for the years of her life, maybe for the rest of her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for her to do what she's doing is, you know, she's risking everything. I'm, you know, Don Diego's risking a lot, obviously doing what he's doing. But in a way, it's really, if she ever gets caught, She's done with her family and everything. Yeah. It's all done for her. Yeah. So, uh, and I was really careful to come up with ways that her hair isn't the same color as she is when she, you know, when she's in her civilian identity. Yeah. As Anita Santiago. Um, and when they did the Queen of Swords, Zoll Productions was going to sue over that show. Uh, but if you ever watch that show, like, here's this beautiful woman, and she puts on a mask. And, she, you know, she's like the best-looking woman in Los Angeles as she rides it, and nobody knows that this is her. Well, I think it's going to be pretty easy to figure out. She's a, the, the, the woman of sorts. Yeah, right. So, uh, like, Lady Roy had finds a way to dye her hair. Yeah. And to make sure that, that everything is different. So yeah. that she, you know, and she's she's always disguising her voice. Yeah. So her voice won't be the same. And so a lot of thought went into developing her character. Yeah. And it, it gave a dynamic to it that... Uh, yeah. But when I did the newspaper series, I didn't do it. I didn't use yeah, it. Yeah, she wasn't in, no. No. No, no. Was, and the reason for it was because Lady Rohide... Yeah. Had, uh, she was a problematic character because she was sexual. Mm. It's always sex. It's not violence. That you, you, you it's always sex. Yeah. And because she was such a sexual character... I knew that going into the newspaper strip, if I did it, they would neuter. The, I would have to neuter the character so much yeah. that there'd be just no sense of doing it. Plus, which, since we were in the midst of doing the comic books, I thought these stories will then be set before any of that happens. Right. And so that way, if I, it doesn't destroy the continuity between what's going on in the books and what was going on in the strips. Right. But then when I did Eulalia Bandini, who was a, she was a bomb aide, um, Tom Yates and, and, yeah. and Todd Smith did a fantastic job with her that I, I brought her back in to do a thing with the priest. Yes. And I wanted her to do the scene with the priest and, you know, and, and she added something to that scene and when the big stagecoach chase that lasted for like three or four months. Yeah. Um, she originally was on stage. Uh, at the, I mean, literally the day about that I'm going to do the start the chase and Zoe's going to steal Monastery's chase and with the corpse yeah. and everything. Um, so I'm going to have you lot going to jump on board. <laughs> and I, and Tommy, Tommy just called me and said, are you sure you want to do this stunt? Oh, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to do it. And she added so much to the scene. Yeah. Because she could, now there was, she could, she could be the audience. Because she, she could react to all the wild craziness that's going on around her, and she could bounce dialogue off of Zoe. He had somebody to talk to, yeah. And she brought, she really added so much to that scene. Yeah, that was and, a memorable scene. And then I really came to love her. So yeah. then the entire second year is around you, Lolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, well, that's fantastic. It's very clear you love women and uh, uh, you love your characters. 
Don, um, I have about uh, five or six more things that we got to talk about, but I think it's going to have to be part two. We're coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, we look forward to uh, following your adventures in the future, the things you're doing, the reminiscences you have, of course, the the viewpoints and the, the thoughtful thinking that you give everything you touch on. And we're grateful for this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed. All right. Thank you, Don. That's great. Okay, guys. Thank you. Well, we can get any questions from the audience. Yeah, we can uh, throw some questions out. I think our next one is a little uh, a little late. Does anyone have a question from the audience? Yeah? Good? Okay. Yeah, Peter? You said you were having sex every day. I think that's great. That was with your wife, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that, that was his new wife. Absolutely. You know, there is, there, is one, um, there is one story that might be good to get on. Um, you had revealed to me that there was a story about Batman that you had plotted that never really came to pass. Do you have um, five minutes? You can just talk to us about that. Okay, at the time I was doing Nathaniel Dusk for um, DC. Yeah, and that was a private yeah. eye? Mm-hmm. And um, Nick Giordano asked me, is there any character at DC that you really want to do? Yeah. And I guess there's no character that I like more at DC than the Batman. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not particularly fond of the Batman they do these days, but well, I don't know about the, I haven't seen them, but what they were turning you into this kind of hard-bitten character. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I'm crazy about that. But I said, yeah, I, would like, I like the Batman. And so Dick said, well, work up a story for the Batman. So uh, in questioning around, like, I'm always like looking with topics that seem to be important to write about. What can you do? Yeah. And there's stuff about, you know, kidnap kids and pedophiles. And I thought, okay, the, the opening premise would just be like the Batman saying a, cha- a six-year-old has been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And there's a sex uh, traffic ring in Gotham City. Yeah. And Batman says, maybe I can't stop murderers. Maybe I can't stop rapists. Maybe I can't stop drug dealers. Maybe I can't, but nobody's stealing kids in my city. Yeah, that's great. And so then I could explore all, and I really did a lot of research. I was working with all the, a lot of it is like with a little six-year-old kid, and it's all through his point of view and what, subjectively, what he thinks as a six-year-old. And I had somebody who worked in the sex crimes uh, division in L.A. um, that dealt with kids all the time. Oh, yeah. So I would pass this stuff on. Anything I wrote, I said, how am, how accurate am I? Do I have this right? Do I am I capturing what how this can feel? What it would be? Uh, and he said, Don, you know, if you can get this book published, we can. And, and, and if DC will do an ad for it, we'll do a thing where parents can and people if they're in this situation. And I think if we help one family, yeah, with this book. So I, I, I worked up, and he was going to deal with going everything from the male prostitutes that hang out at the gaming places and the politicians that take advantage, who well, some of them have predilections that. Yeah, that's so great. Position, like, so it was going to deal with it. Yeah. I don't, wow. you know, like, I'm always looking for safe subjects. <laughs> yeah, right. How safe. So anyhow, I, I wrote the story up, and remember, I haven't been paid anything for it. 
and I guess Dick Giordano passed it on to uh, uh, Julie Schwartz. Oh, yeah. And I was out, and Julie Schwartz calls and gets Marsha. Marsha, your wife, yeah. he calls your house. And he starts yelling at her. I, I don't do this kind of story. We, we don't do this kind of story. This is you know, it's too sort of. We don't. I don't. I don't want any like thing like that. The Batman and he's, and he's yelling at Marsha. Huh? And so when I come home, Marsha tells me that, that, that Julius and I called Julius once. And I said, "You ever call my wife up again and start yelling at her? I will be down at those offices first thing the next day. Yeah. You will deal with me personally. You got a problem with me? You call me. Well, Don, we don't do this kind of stuff in, in, at DC Comics. I said, look. Well, he said, I do gimmick stories. Give me a gimmick. I said, well, I don't do gimmick stories. I haven't been paid a word for the story. You've got no right to be mad about anything. Yeah. Send the story back. But now, years later, regimes have changed at DC, and oh. Bob Shrek was sure. editing Batman. Great guy. And Bob is a great guy. So I'm talking to Bob about this Batman story. Bob says, yeah, let's do it. Wow. Send me uh, send me a proposal on. So I I, I I know how these things work. That be, especially because of the subject matter, they're going to want to know everything that's in there. Because as soon as you do, send them something, it's going to be I don't care. They're going to well, how are you going to handle this? Or how are you going to handle that? So I give them the entire every scene that's going to be in this book. No. One of like people picking up young girls in, in the in the bus stations. Because this happened to my daughter in Chicago. Oh, wow. Like at 2 o'clock in the morning, she's heading back to the West Coast. Jeez. You know, and a lot of young girls disappear that way. Yeah. So I, I, everything was like based on stuff I either really knew about, people had gone through, I was with people who dealt with that kind of stuff. And uh, so I did all, I, so they had it all. Yeah. And then Bob says, no, 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 just do a one or two page thing. I, 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 you know, I'm not trying to read this just, just, so I said that I, I break down I do a one or two page thing which I'm not I think it's probably the only time I ever did it right and uh, so Bob writes me back he goes well Don I, I, I can't see the faces of these people like wearing kabuki masks so I write back to Bob and said well obviously you're more intelligent than the average comic book editor um, the kabuki mask is a nice reference but you asked for one page what do you think you're going to see underneath the mask in one page? Oh, yeah. You know, you got the entire script there. So Bob gives me a call and said, Don, let's go out to lunch. And when we went out to lunch together, Bob said, to be honest with you, Don, when we started talking about this, I thought I was going to have what I said was the bottom line for what I was going to do in my books. He said, and they're making me rewrite Frank Miller. Oh. If they're making me rewrite Frank Miller... What do you think they'll make me do to Don McGregor? Oh, yeah. See, you don't have to say anything more, Bob. I got it. I understand. Mm. You're absolutely right. And that's the reason the story didn't get done. Oh, wow. But the story still exists. Hmm. It, could be, it could be done. Maybe someone's listening to this and we'll uh, you never give know. you a call. You, you never, never know. know. Good. I'll, I'll, I'll just say, that Don is still such a pain in the ass. Will a guy never change? <laughs> I hope he never does. I hope he never does. Well, Don McGregor, thank you so very, very much. We appreciate thank it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Good. Hope you enjoyed it. That's Don McGregor and Ed Cato. Ed has several panels going on at Comic-Con, starting things off at 10.30 in the morning, a panel called How to Get News Coverage. What's the difference between getting an item that will get news coverage, previews and interviews, and what doesn't? It's going to involve 
Rick Offenberger from First Comic News and Archie Comics, Tim Schismar from Fangoria, Greg Howman from Comic Mix, that's Mike Gold's website, or former website, I should say, Jez Abel from First Comic News, our buddy Rob Salkowitz, who you'll hear later this week, is also on the panel, along with Ed... And uh, Josh Waldrop from Red Gorilla Comics, J.C. Vaughn from Gemstone Publishing, who published Overstreet, and Holly Golightly from Broadsword Comics. They all explain what worked for them, what to avoid when looking for press coverage. Sounds like a good informative panel for a creator-owned person. You might want to check it out. It also has a Captain Action panel on Thursday from 4 to 5. He is part of Vanguard Publications' 25th anniversary panel. David Spurlock and I'm sure a lot of other great people Friday afternoon from 4 to 5. And then on Saturday, he has a panel uh, involving Overstreet about licensing. And that's Saturday from noon to 1. So that's Ed Cato's schedule. Don McGregor will be with me at Terrificon. And that'll be next month, starting on August 17th at Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut in their big convention rooms. Very excited about doing Terrificon. There's a lot of great Silver Age, Bronze Age, and modern creators that are all going to be there. Don is going to be on a Black Panther panel that I will moderate on Saturday, along with other great uh, Black Panther voices like Afua Richardson, the wonderful artist, Christopher Priest, the wonderful writer. Very, very excited about this Black Panther panel at Terrificon with Don McGregor. So as we walk over to the small press area and uh, get set up for our conversation with Jason Inman that gets more traditionally word balloony, uh, I want to stop and uh, take a break and tell you about some of the great deals that are going on at InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There's great Don McGregor product waiting for you there at InStock Trades at great prices. You can get the Black Panther Epic Collection trade paperback, Panther's Rage, a wonderful series from uh, Don McGregor and uh, with a Gil Kane cover. Rick Buckler is involved with this book as well. Uh, it's one of the great McGregor Black Panther stories, and uh, it's 42% off, just $20.29. You can get his Zorro story, Matanzas, the trade paperback with Don McGregor and Mike Mayhew. It's a great lost adventure of Zorro, one of those fantastic stories that they do at Dynamite. 30% off, it's $10.49. Or you can get the epic Black Panther Panther's Quest trade paperback. Don McGregor, Gene Colan, a Bill Reinhold cover, and it's a fantastic story. 42% off, $17.39. It's all waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Don't forget, $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. Great books at great prices, InStockTrades.com. All right, as we move on to the uh, small press area, let's uh, pick up our conversation with Jason Inman. You remember Jason? He does great work uh, on video at YouTube and his uh, Geek History Lesson podcast. Fantastic in-depth conversations with himself and Ashley Robinson discussing uh, one particular comic book topic. And, man, I'll tell you, I loved his Golden Age and Silver Age Superman runs. The Justice Society one was excellent. Big fan of the show. Jason also has uh, heard a lot on Collider videos with our buddy Rob Meyer Burnett. Ashley has done that as well. Jason and Ashley have co-written a very interesting graphic novel called Jupiter Jet. It is being put out by Action Lab, and it's a really fun adventure and I'm really happy to help Jason promote it. The book just came out. It's available now. Order it from your comic book stores. Very much in uh, the flavor of the Rocketeer as we get into our conversation. But also, uh, not only talking about Jupiter Jet, but we slide over to streaming talk and also movies. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Here's our conversation now with Jason Inman on Word Balloon. Jason Inman, welcome back to Word Balloon, and uh, congratulations. First trade for Jupiter Jet. 
Thank you, man. It is an absolute pleasure coming back to Word Balloon. Again, it's always mind-blowing to me, man, because I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I've been a huge fan of this podcast for years, so I can't believe that I'm a returning guest. <laughs> ah, you're a good man. No, no, no. We have good conversations, and uh, hey, man, you're making good content, uh, not only uh, online when you uh, give your reviews and your opinions, you and Ash, but uh, you guys are doing a great job with Jupiter Jet as well, and I'm happy to help you promote the book, and uh, like I said, trade one out. And uh, yes. nice nice twists, I think. Uh, I don't want to spoil for people who haven't come along for the ride, but uh, I think the world of Jupiter Jet expands in a very interesting way and I think opens a door for more interesting stories. Yeah, that's the thing that we can finally, finally talk about after two years of Jupiter Jet was we've always been teasing that there's a sci-fi twist in the fifth issue and a lot of think a lot of people didn't believe us but that little sci-fi turn that happens around page 12 or 13 in issue five was in our original meeting about jupiter jet when we first came up with the name i shouted that out it just came from nowhere so it was like <laughs> the mana from the gods filtering down and you know it, it's really exciting because I, I our first trade came out it's volume one. I like to talk. It's sort of our pilot episode of our season. It's sort of like the pilot. Like if you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get into Jupiter Jet. Like this is your, this is your nice little taste. And now we want to take you into season two because it really <laughs> goes in a lot of different places. I can appreciate that absolutely, man. And I think um, this is the kind of book that I think would excite a young reader, and or if you're a parent uh, and you want to read along with your child, this is a good uh, book to do it with. Good fun, bouncy art, and good action, but appropriate all-ages action. And yeah, I think, like you said, I think this sci-fi twist is going to excite kids. And, uh, you know, it, I don't know how quickly you're going to turn around and get get going on the second arc, but uh, very cool, man. I, I like the twist. We have, we have no plans currently. Uh, we have talked to the publisher a little bit. We know exactly what would happen. Sure. In, in in book two. And there are a lot of hints for that if you've read the backups that we did in every issue. So like we – backup every issue, in case your listeners don't know, we did a sort of prequel mm -hmm. to Jupiter Jet where it was about her parents and how her parents dealt with the situations that we saw in the same issue. The hints for what volume two will be are in those backups. Yep. So and you can kind of piece it together. I think if, if you're a smart reader and I kind of hope that, you know, everybody that picks up Jupiter Jet is a smart reader. And I'm going to say you are a smart reader because you picked it up. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're all there and there's a lot of fun stuff. And, yeah, it's it's you know, I'll tell you what, my friend, it, it's it's crazy to have a trade paperback. This is my first trade paperback. I've been on lots of anth <laughs> I've been in, in anthologies, but it's kind of it's kind of neat to see, you know, your name on a spine and to see the, all those single issues kind of come together in sort of a book, an actual book. It's, it's really neat. It's really cool. Understood. And I think, uh, again, I think you guys stuck the landing. I think you guys did a great job. And, Thank you, uh, dude. Absolutely. And I also like how the backups. You sure, you're sure you're not going to turn this into a, like an intervention? Yeah, however. You're like, I was secretly, <laughs> however, you should have done this. No. And in page 25, you, you invalidated your whole premise. <laughs> no, no. There is no page 25. We didn't I, have that many pages. Well, there you go. No, and I was going to say, as you brought up the backup stories, too, yeah, they kind of wrap around and, as you say, are a springboard into what may come next. And I also I thought that was very clever writing in terms of what starts as a prequel 
kind of, you know, uh, wraps around in a very string theory sort of way where the past is the present. And all of a sudden it's like, ooh, here we well, are. Yeah, we can spoil that a little bit. Okay. Uh, uh, the So the, the backup <laughs> for our prequel series, or the two pages in every issue, mm-hmm. the ending of it leads you about six months before issue one begins. So it kind of like, yeah, ties nicely because we, we wrote this and I was so happy. It was it was the last thing we wrote on the whole thing. The last page of our backup says the end and the beginning right. question mark, which I had always planned like from the beginning with <laughs> Ashley. Like I told her, I was like, that's the way I want to end it. And it's one of those confusing comic book phrases. Like there's a very famous cover between of Uncanny X-Men Jim Lee is drawing the issue and Captain America, Black Widow and Wolverine are on the cover. And the caption for the cover says together again for the first time, (laughs) which is one of those comic book phrases that you're like, this doesn't work. But just like the end and the beginning, it's one of those that you want to do because you're like, oh, that's so cool. So, yeah, it wraps us into the beginning of the first issue. And that was intentional because we really wanted to Ashley and I to sort of mimic the adventures of the parents with the adventures of the kids. Absolutely. And it's intentional if you look through it, like the issue one backup is sort of like tied together to the issue one issue. And we also sprinkled in some explanations for some stuff that were happening in the main issue in the backup. So you meet some certain characters or you learn some concepts in the backup just slightly before you learn them in the regular issue, which is so interesting because this was not intentional because the backup only happened because we had a stretch goal on our Kickstarter. <laughs> and so when we hit, when we hit, when we hit a stretch goal for our Kickstarter, when we, when we first, when we funded, which was amazing, we funded three days mm-hmm. when we funded Ashley and I immediately were, what do we do for our stretch goal? And we had wanted to work with Jorge Corona for a very long time. And so we had met him at a couple cons. We reached out to him. We were like, hey, if we hit this goal, would you draw 10 pages for us? Because we thought 10, two, two pages per issue. Yeah. And he, was like, and he was like, yeah. And we were like, well, we don't even know if we'll hit it. So who knows? We hit it the next day. <laughs> so suddenly we were like, uh-oh, we got to write 10 more pages here we go. Um, and luckily, we, we'd, we'd hit Hori up early enough just before uh, his amazing series, Number One with a Bullet, uh, which I think is great. If you haven't read it, go read it at Image. Oh, yeah. um, so, and also, now he's Eisner nominated. So I was glad that we were able to slip Jorge in and get to work with him before he becomes uber famous and more talented than all of us. <laughs> well, and um, again, uh, you were able to... Because of uh, your Kickstarter, and was it a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter? It was a Kickstarter. It was yeah. a Kickstarter. All right, thanks, Jason. And well, uh, because you were able to hit your goals, uh, you know, it obviously I think probably made you that much more uh, attractive to Action Lab to get this thing going. Do you see yourself doing possibly a similar model and kickstarting a volume two and and kind of going through the process like that again? Yeah, like I think I think we do now. The earliest that we could do a volume two and we haven't gotten actual labs thumbs up or thumbs down okay on on a volume two that is all going to be mainly determined on how the trade sells sure uh, which is the secret of comic books my friends of course but if you listen to this podcast i think you know all the secrets of comic books because <laughs> way he john talks the way more important and better people than me so um you, you know it would be next year at the earliest uh ben our artist ben matsuya the fantastic ben matsuya is working on another 
sort of creator-owned book with a different creator right now. Okay. Um, that he got because of Jupiter Jet, which is super awesome. Oh, that's great. Very uh, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm glad that um, – it's so funny, Ben, when the book was going along, when the trade was first coming out and they did a listing in Barnes & Noble, he did a very – a tweet that was really cute that it was like, hey – Oh my God, my workers in Barnes and Noble. Ha ha. You know, he did the same thing when we got into preview. So it was really cool. And it's really nice that um, this is our journey along with his mm-hmm. together hitting hitting these sort of milestones. No, so, that's but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but next year, next year, uh, uh, we're gonna do we're gonna do another project before we get to Jupiter Jet Volume Two. We wanna we okay. wanna change the palette up a little bit. And but that one will be a Kickstarter as well. You know, it's it's tough, man. Um Unless we sell Jupiter Jet, unless, you know, some company like Netflix or Disney or Warner Brothers scoops up Jupiter Jet and is like, this is going to be our next cartoon, it, it comes back to the issue where we have to fund the book again. Like, sure. we, we have to pay for the artist and the colorist and the, the letterer and the cover artist and all the variants. And, and that's a lot of money. That's, that's you know, that's a, that's a lot of money. We actually asked for less than what we needed. And... Um, I mean, here's the secret story, secret sauce of the whole thing. Ashley and I didn't receive one dime from the any of the Kickstarter money. It all went into the production of the book. Good to hear. And well, yeah. understood, too. And I know that's obviously part of the gamble as well sometimes to fund a book and, and pay the people. You know, get, get quality people so you can put out a quality product. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, working with professionals is expensive, kids. Yeah, man. No, I understand. And I, I – well, I uh, – was talking with uh, you know other uh, creators recently as well, uh, um, older creators, and I think that's one of their concerns about trying to do creator-owned books. People that kind of spent mm-hmm. their career either at a DC or a Marvel, and like, well, you know, there's no money up front, and it's yeah. like, yeah, I understand, and and um, yeah, again, and and you want to pay uh, the artists that uh, can help you, like a letterer and a colorist and a regular artist who, you know, like I said, make a quality book. So usually it is the writer that's going to kind of eat it until money comes in from the fun, the finished product from the trade or whatever. So I can exactly. appreciate that. No. Yeah, and it's a, it's a tough argument too because especially some of the old guard, there are there are many comic book creators out there that aren't really working for the big two anymore. And I would love to see like what is their creator own book. But I understand having done it myself now, yeah, it's a big economic investment. And then if you do the economic investment, there's still a big chance that it will never pay off, yeah. ever. Yeah, and that's can be really tough, especially if you're a comic book creator with a family or a sure. mortgage. Or that's a it's a very very risky gamble. Agreed, absolutely, yeah. man. Well, again, I think uh, you did a hell of a job on this uh, first volume, and I don't blame you guys for uh, jumping on a, a different title as well. You, you know, I reminded of people like Remender and Bendis who. Basically, did the same thing very early in their careers. Yes, um, exactly. So you know, we actually—I uh, I have to tell this story. We, we tweeted about it, but I could not believe it. Uh, we uh, Jupiter Jet sort of made a cameo in a Brian Michael Bendis thing very recently. Huh. So what there, did I miss? So he, <laughs> uh, so he he did a video where he was doing a Superman interview, okay. and I think it was for Time dot com or the New York Times, one of the two. Uh-huh. And they they did a video. And like many comic book professional interviews, they go to a comic book shop for the background and they filmed a lot of B-roll <laughs> and some of the B-roll in the first 30 seconds. Some of the B-roll is Brian looking through comic books 
in the first 30 seconds of this video, he goes, oh, hey, that looks interesting. And he pulls a book off the shelf. <laughs> and the book is the trade of Jupiter Jet. Very nice. Excellent, man. <laughs> and he starts flip. He starts flipping through it. So, so me and Ashley and our artist even are all like, hey, we made a cameo in a Brian Michael Bendis thing. That's excellent. Brian tweets Ashley and says, nope, I even bought it. And like oh, showed us great. the picture. Like, yeah, so it was really cool. So um, uh, we're now best friends. And, uh, you know, I'm going to a barbecue later there tonight. No, I'm completely aligned. I've actually never met Brian. He's very nice. And ever, I, lis- I always love listening to your interviews with him, too. Well, he's the best, as you know, from listening to these word balloons. And I'm sure when you run into him at a convention, it'll be a nice uh, encounter because he's a good guy. And, yeah, that's the great thing. No, he always likes to try new things. And, I'm going to name drop you, know. you like crazy. Please do. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> See? And that only, <laughs> that only reinforced the proof. That yeah, that people do listen. No, he always he's great that way. He'll always be like, "Hey man, just so you know, more word balloon talk at my last appearance." I'm like, "Great, you know, that's wonderful." Is, is that your Bendis? That's part of my Bendis. Right, hello, <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you have any other comic book creator impressions? I imagine well, that's a very niche market. Dan DiDio, of course. That's basically oh, you know combination. Everybody of, has a Dan yeah, DiDio. Hey, All right, this is great. All right, I don't want to I don't want to spend a lot of time, but uh, very excited about the DC Nation today. <laughs> I even do the last. My favorite thing is Jack Kirby. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so yeah, those two. I'm trying to think. Who else do I do? That's a. Uh, well, of course, um, uh, Mark Wade. Uh, you know, if uh, if I have a minute, I'd like to point out that uh, you know Doctor Strange actually has an interesting backstory, and it's like, yeah, we know. That is a great Mark Wade. That's a pretty <laughs> good Mark Wade, man. That's really good. Wow. See, being a radio guy, this is what we do. We mimic voices. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I haven't got yeah, my Jason tough. Inman yet. But, uh, oh, dude, I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> that's all right. It's going to be very Midwestern with a lot of ums. That's our, like, that's our way. Exactly, man. I completely understand that. I No, I'm I'm very happy with uh, – now, how, how, has has the uh, trade come out yet or is it uh, – yeah. So the so our, our first volume has come out. It came out uh, May 30th. Oh, great. So it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I think Target has it, but your local comic book shop can order it as well. It's very affordably priced at fourteen ninety nine, oh. which is a steal. It's actually less than if you bought all five issues together. So there I'm sorry, go. people that did that. Well, that's cool. That's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, it looks good. It's got a John Boy Myers cover. It's really great. Outstanding. And I noticed uh, as I was thumbing through uh, the PDF that you sent me of subsequent issues, you had an Art Baltazar variant cover. Oh yes, dude. Uh, that's a dream. <laughs> Art, Art Balthazar. It's so funny. I ran into him at New York Comic Con last year, and I didn't realize it was Art. I, I, you know, but he was a very dressed dapper man with oh, a very yeah. nice hat and a and a vest and a tie. <laughs> and I walked past him, and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, "I'm a fan of you." And I said to him, of what? How are you? Uh, like, he's like, you know, he and he said, well, I've, I've seen you on DC. I've seen you on Collider. I've watched a lot of your videos. And I said, oh, thank you. What's your name? And he goes, Art. And without missing a beat, I go, are you Art Balthazar? And he says, yes. And I'm like, dude, I'm a fan of you. Oh, man. And then we, you know, and then the end of the conversation ended up with like, so what do I have to pay you to do a variant cover for my personal comic book? And he said, well, a lot, but, you know, it'll be a cheap a lot. <laughs> that's good well so it we looked great it. It, it yeah looked... it's great it, it was really good it, it was it, 
man, he is just a genius. I'm so excited for his uh, future upcoming Superman of Smallville book. I think yes, that's what it's called. Very good, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it looks great. It's it's so good. In fact, uh, one of our somebody who bought the book tweeted me that because Art was at Superman celebration this year, mm-hmm. and one of the fans got that issue signed. And I'm jealous of that fan because I haven't been able to get my copy of Art's cover signed. So <laughs> that's cool. Well, again, he'll be at San Diego, so maybe you'll run into him if you're. Uh, I need to do it. Yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah, I, that 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 was one of the things. Another thing that I learned, like I said, kind of making the transition into creating my own book. That again, most of these creators are professionals. You ask them. You know, you don't have to be Marvel or DC. You can ask these creators, be like, what would you charge me for a variant cover? And they'll give you a price. And you can either say yes or no to the price. And if you say yes, then you'll have like a John Boy Myers cover or you'll have a Art Balthazar cover or uh, um, a Jen uh, um, a Bartel cover. Cool. I almost spaced on her last name. I apologize, Jen. That's all right. You, you made it. It's, no, that's great, man. And you're right. That's exactly right. And I know from guys like Tim Seeley, he got uh, Joe Chesko to do a hack slash variant. You know, I mean, it, no, it can happen. And again, if you know, you can meet the price and stuff. Hey, man, these guys, these guys are making money. Everyone's everyone's trying to you know get by, and it only helps spread their brand when they yeah, cross sure. promote on, on something like this. So that's excellent, man. No, I'm very happy. And again, I think uh, the whole production was just slick, and uh, it's a it's a great trade, man. So I'm very excited to help you uh, spread the word on Jupiter Jet. Uh, get yours, have your co- uh, comic store order yours, and uh, enjoy the adventure. And then uh, look for whatever the next announcement is for. Uh, Please Jason do, yeah, it, yeah. We we one thing we've encountered is that a lot of people get kind of thrown because Jupiter Jet is an all ages book, but we say it's all ages like Pixar's all ages. Sure. So your grandma can enjoy it, your five-year-old can enjoy it, but a 40-year-old man can enjoy it as well. Every, there's Just like Pixar, there's something to enjoy in that book. That's specifically why we wrote it that way. We wrote it that way because most of the books from the big two, I feel you can't do that with anymore. You cannot hand it to your grandma and your you know, six-year-old little boy and a 40-year-old, and they all enjoy it. Very they're, few. They're, very few. Yeah, very, very few. And so we wanted to make it this book that dads could enjoy with their daughters and sons could enjoy with their moms. And everyone will get something exciting from it. Well, and also interesting timing because as we're recording, was it last week was the uh, anniversary for The Rocketeer. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. This, and this book has a lot of Rocketeer in it as well in the best ways. Uh, so I, I think uh, fans of that will uh, will appreciate it. And that's that's a product that was as I was pointing out talking about it on social media kind of uh mismarketed. And I think yes. is, and I think uh, this thing is uh a good all, like you said all ages product but it has a lot of good mm-hmm. action in it and I think uh story elements and characters that all ages will appreciate yeah. definitely. And and I just want to say to anybody that has already picked up Jupiter Jet and is listening to this podcast thank you so much. And uh another thing that you learn thrown out of trade my friend you learn all these secrets when you cross over to a creator side one of these secrets is is that amazon has an algorithm that if you have 50 or more so reviews on amazon for your book amazon will promote it more amazon will show it more love and more features and stuff like that so we're sitting right now at the time of this recording at 26 so even even if you didn't buy the book on Amazon and you love Jupiter Jet, please go over and give it a review. And that is that goes across the board 
for all creators. I, I learned this from Alex Segura like last year, uh, the co-president and uh, chief of staff of Archie Comics over there. That So I'd, I'd make sure that any if you like a creator's books, not even mine, any creator's books, prose, comics, go to Amazon and give it a review because it, it does actually make a difference. That's cool to know. And, I mean, as, yeah. as you know from a podcasting standpoint, we can never crack the iTunes uh, algorithm, so it's nice to get some uh, knowledge from the Amazon side. So that's Same a, thing, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's no. the same kind of weird algorithm. There you go. Good share, Jason. I like that. That yeah, was yeah. excellent, man. Well, with the time left, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind uh, getting into some uh, other things. Well, first of all, you mentioned – going to everything. boy. Well, I, I do, I, I'm sure uh, listeners are curious. You know, you were a big part of DC Access and, uh, you know, one of their main hosts – and I know that uh, you've uh, you've left the company. Yes, uh, um, yes, we uh, parted ways. That, that happened uh, back in February. Um, I have no ill will towards DC. I still love them. I was super super excited about their Walmart comics announcement. Because, yeah, how about it? Yeah, dude, that's you know I was. Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, because my first comic book I ever bought was bought in a Walmart. Because the yeah the area where I was from in the middle of nowhere Kansas. There were no comic book shops where I was. Yep. There were no big cities within two hours of me. So, you know, Walmart had a had a rack. Walmart had comics. That's where I bought my first Batman 466. Batman's tied to the bottom of the rocket. I remember that issue. I bought <laughs> many issues of Invincible Iron Man. That's where I bought Ron Mars' Kyle Rayner Green Lantern run. Sure. Grant Morrison's JLA, that's where I bought that, was from a Walmart. So the fact that comic books are going back to a Walmart, because back in the day, dude, when they had that same rack, in the toy section of my Walmart anyways, they would have these little displays where you could buy 10 comic books sort of like bundled together Mm -hmm. for five bucks. Sure. And they had tons of them. And it was all like a grab bag. It was like a little bit of DC, a little bit of Marvel. And sometimes there would be like some young blood in there or, or wildcats. Funny. I would buy the crap out of them. Sure. And I had family members give them to me as gifts. And there was always little treasure tropes. Half the reason why I know all these weird comic book runs like the um, – is the name – is it Mike Paroback, Justice Society of America? Did I yeah, say that name the, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The only reason I know about that run is because there was an issue stuck in one of those packs. <laughs> that was a fun run, absolutely. Those were all the solo. Uh, I think, yeah, right? yeah. They they had just come back, and it's they yeah. sort of had like a DC animated style yes, to them. But very it, much so. I thought it was. I ate that stuff up. Oh, I yeah. loved it. Well, and it and it was but, reminiscent of their forties uh, artists and everything there, when Hastings and the like that that were more cartoony and not yeah. you know not as realistic. But yeah, go on. So, uh, yeah, so I feel DC making this step back into Walmart is a genius idea. And the idea that they're going to reprint a bunch of old stuff and follow it sequentially, I think, is is genius. Now, I saw a lot of retailers get mad by the idea of the exclusivity of Tom King's Superman and Brian Michael Bendis's uh, Batman. Right. I, I get it. But from a business standpoint... I bet that's the only reason why Walmart said yes. Now, I have no idea. This is just me talking. So that would be my guess of what why Walmart signed on. And a lot of I saw retailers got mad about that. I guess my response to that would be, well, you guys have like 100 issues of Marvel and DC that are exclusive to you every single month. Why would, why would four stories make a difference? 
Yeah, I, I do see. I understand the vendor's point of view. Um, I understand Walmart's point of view as well. Um, this, you know, it's obviously having a new piece of content and certainly the creators they've decided to put on the various heroes uh, does make it attractive. And I can appreciate vendors going, oh, man, well, we obviously sell the hell out of that as well. Um, I'm just shrugging. It's fine. I'm, I think in the long run, uh, DC will find a way to get that product into uh, the, uh, the regular direct market as well. Oh, 100 percent. You know, like we're, we're all fooling ourselves if a year from now we don't have a trade of right. the first 12 story. They're going to do it. Of course. There you Which go. is another reason why I think it's like, yeah, they'll have that story. It's just going to be in the Walmart for the first year. It's the same thing as like what they do with the, the digital comics. Injustice right. has has its digital chapters first and then you get a print issue of the digital chapters. That's true. No, you're right. So it's the, it's, it's the same thing. It's just a different market. you got to do stuff to jazz up different markets. I don't know. I think it's an exciting idea because m- and with more and more comic book shops closing down, the, I know there are kids out there that are watching YouTube videos, looking at Twitter, hungry for comic books, and they cannot get to a comic book right. store. Absolutely, man. No, absolutely. And I feel that way about the digital stores as well. So if Walmart can be a brick-and-mortar destination, and as you say, those, those uh, bundles that they used to sell – um, God, I mean, you know, I'm from the era when uh, there was three comics for a dollar or whatever, uh, and it was the same thing. And you're right. I think that stuff can really impact a reader, even if it is like half a story. And even these uh, – that's another complaint too, I think, from readers is that they are going to be episodic uh, as far as the reprint stuff. And I'm like, well, that's that's okay. I mean, I, I used to get those bundles as well and – um, would read a, a Hellstrom comic, and it would definitely be a middle chapter of a story, having no oh, idea yeah. where it came from. But I was still intrigued enough that it was a, it was a cool little piece of the story, and made me yeah. want to like seek out more. So no, I think this is a good thing, and I and yeah, I'm excited, man. And I and I come from that original generation of hundred page spectaculars. That's how I learned a lot about uh, the earlier decades of the Silver and Golden Age of uh, of DC. The stuff before my time, and you know, I was reading Justice Society stories in those JLA hundred-page spectaculars. So I mean, it was great. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a good. I think it's a, yeah, it's it's nothing but a good opportunity. And again, it's going to expose a lot of these characters and and runs that I think a lot of these people that are walking through Walmart have probably have no idea about. Yeah. No, I agree absolutely. So man. yeah, it's I'm only, really it's a, yeah, it's a, it's really going to expose the product to a bunch of new readers. And uh, yeah, I you know I no I think this is a good thing, and really also the young age uh, stuff that DC is ex- experimenting with. Again, I think they're uh, going in the right directions, and they're trying to come up with new ways of uh, presenting comics to different readers, and mm-hmm. just I'm... just get more people interested in comics again. I agree. Yeah. So so in a in a long about before we got to talking about Walmart, <laughs> and I completely derailed you. It's all right, man. Um, so I, yeah, I, I I split from DC. Um, it, it was due to contract issues. We couldn't agree on certain contract things, so uh, we parted ways. And uh, you know, they're an awesome company, and uh, Tiffany Smith and Whitney Moore are still holding down the fort, and they're awesome, and they'll be great. And uh, yeah, uh, new new horizons, new things. And you and Ash continue to uh, generate your own videos and stuff, and your own podcasts, obviously. Ex- Greek, exactly. Geek history like, lesson is uh, up and running still, and you know, kicking. Yeah, ass. and I. I still do like four video, too many videos a week actually on my own YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jawin. Um, yeah, we just saw Ant Man and the Wasp. So, uh, fantastic. Cool. And, yeah, uh, it's okay. Oh, just an okay. <laughs> 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 it's 
interesting. All right. It's okay. It's it's okay. Uh, um, you know, it's all I will say is this. Um, Marvel to me had two huge home runs this year. Hell yeah. With Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War. I think they knocked them both out of the park. Ant-Man and the Wasp is a solid hit to the outfield that gets the runner to third base. Okay. But after the amazingness after Avengers Infinity War and Black Panther, to me, there was no way Ant-Man and the Wasp was going to sure. match those movies because it's Ant-Man. I can appreciate that. Is it is it as good as the first Ant-Man movie or is it? I, I, to be honest with you, I, I enjoyed it more than the first Ant-Man. Okay. Well, that's okay so. then. I enjoyed it more than the first Ant-Man, but, I, um, you know, I'm just not a big fan of Ant-Man, so there you go. Okay, I wonder if this is going to be, and I, I believe this is the correct year, 2013, another 2013, where, you know, the, the easy metaphor is, I love pizza, but if I'm eating pizza every day, I might get sick of pizza. And I'm, yeah, wondering, that's a, if, I'm wondering if there might be some superhero film fatigue in that, hey, we want to see everything, but it's coming like you're in a snowball fight, another metaphor. And you're just getting well, pelted, and I'm just like, yeah. It, I, you know, I don't know. I've seen most everybody else like really, really likes it. Um, so I think I might be in the minority on this one. Okay. But at the same time, when I walked out of Avengers: Infinity War, my head was immediately said, "Give me the next one, or give me the next one this Christmas." Like you making me wait a year for this movie is insane. <laughs> also. You're going to put two movies in between it that may or may not have anything to do with the next one? I don't care. Give me the next one. What's the uh, what's the one after Ant-Man? That won't, that won't... Uh, Captain Marvel. Oh, that's right. Of course it is. Yeah. So yeah. we get Captain Marvel next year, I think, in February. And, and then May and, and then it's Avengers. This is yeah. yeah. So we have three Marvel movies a year and Ant-Man and the Wasp already in July or June, excuse me, or July. Yes. Um, is our last one of the year. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, oh, well. I mean, you know, I... I well, yeah, like, whatever. I mean, we're getting three Marvel movies a year. What are we complaining about, Well, right? yeah, yeah. Well, and I, <laughs> I mean, well, I'll confess, I have not seen Solo yet. I haven't seen Deadpool yet. And it's just because I've been too busy. And I'm actually hoping to see them this week before uh, before the 4th of July. Because I still have Incredibles and Ant-Man to watch as well. Oh, man, so, Incredibles is so good. That's what I'm hearing. So uh, I've seen it twice already. I love it's the best. I just feel it's the closest I'm ever going to get to a Jack Kirby Stanley Fantastic Four movie on the screen. I understand. Well, certainly that's how the first one felt. Go on. Yeah, this one is the same way. This this one. Now I'll say the same. This is the opposite of Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think the second Incredibles is a slight step down Mm. from the first movie, but it can never match the surprise of seeing that first one. This one felt like reading your favorite second issue of that series, the comic book series that you love. Okay. And you're not surprised by it because you've already read the first issue, right. but you still enjoy every single part of it. That's cool. Gilbert Godfrey just had um, the guy that scored uh, both movies. And he's Michael also, Giacchino. Yes, and he also obviously did Doctor Strange and a lot of, and did Star Trek, did the, uh, the first J.J. movie, and I think probably yep. the other two as well. Uh, certainly Have beyond. You, have you listened to some of Giacchino's music? I, I, see, Michael Giacchino right now, for me, is the best composer, film composer out there of anybody. I kind of think you're right, man. I really do. You're right. I mean, he's, he's, he's very versatile, and I think... Yes. Well, he gets... 
and and really even in in this interview with Gilbert Gottfried, you know, he's he's checking names, you know, Hoyt Curtin, who was the great Hanna Barbera composer of of the classics, you know, fifties and sixties stuff, even into the seventies. Um, you know, so he gets it and was talking about collaborating with you know Brad Bird on on Incredibles and. Uh, doing Doctor Strange and some of these other things, and and even like I said, the Star Trek music. There's, you know, you walk into Star Trek where you've already got Alexander Courage doing the original series theme mm-hmm. and Jerry Goldsmith doing the Next Generation and the first motion picture of the original casts. You know that that classic anthem, and it's like, how do you honor that but still be original? And I really mm-hmm. think you know the music in the the JJ Star Trek movies are one of the best things about the films. And again, oh, it's amazing. They, they evoke they evoke classic Trek, but they are their own thing. He's my pick to replace John Williams for Star Wars. He talked a lot about John Williams, and I didn't know this. I guess for is it Star Tours? You know, I suck when it comes to Disney Disneyland and Disney World because it's been mm-hmm. a long time since I've never been to Orlando. I've been to Anaheim twice. But I think isn't it the Star Tours or whatever that they do that are kind of Star Yeah, 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 Star Tours. Did he do some of the music for Star he Tours? He did, and he took a lot of the John Williams music and made it into the kind of loungy stuff that I guess you hear when you're in line. Oh, that's great. See, because the only Star Wars movie he has composed so far is Rogue One, and I thought his Rogue One score was amazing. Agreed. Yeah, uh, I actually thought his Spider-Man Homecoming score was great too. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he. I, I've yet to hear a Giacchino score that I hate, and one of the best ones out there is uh, his music for War for the Planets of the Apes. <laughs> yeah. Which is surprising because you're like, oh, I don't think a music from a from a monkey movie is going to be any good. <laughs> but a lot of that movie, Caesar doesn't talk, and that music, that small little piano theme takes you through it and also he has some cues back to the original score from the original charlton heston yep. planet of the apes movie it's it's great <laughs> it's so good uh, yeah he the other great thing about michael giacchino is i briefly got to meet him last year at san diego comic-con and i fanboyed hard on him talking about <laughs> Lost and talking about star trek and i'll tell you what he's an uber nerd Yes. So he's one of us, my friend. Absolutely. No, and he talks He talks about his very serious love for the original uh, Planet of the Ape films and everything. So no, he's, uh, yeah, like I said, you know, Gilbert Gottfried's one of us as well. And I mean, that's the thing. His podcast, uh, he definitely. You may call him Gilbert. I call him Mr. Smith's a Spitlick. <laughs> he was a fine Mixie Spitlick. Absolutely. <laughs> How do you say it? Say it again. I say Mixel Spitlick. I said it wrong when I said it the Oh, first no, time. no. Well, you know, I, I, I. You know, they had those power records where it, they would have a comic book and, a, and an actual 33 or a 45, and you mm-hmm. would play like a, this audio soundtrack to the comic book. And that's when I learned how to say Mixius Pedelec because. Oh, it's interesting. So you yeah. put the Mixie in it. Well, they used to, they broke it down in the old Silver Age comics that pronounced Mixius Pedelec. And uh, in, in Superman the Animated Series, they say they say Mixel Spitlick, <laughs> and they break it down too, and they have Gilbert say it like he breaks it down as well. So I guess you know just whatever. Oh sure, well, and, also, and then Supergirl says it differently too. I think I think Supergirl says it completely differently. Well, and I think uh, I forget who did the voice. It might have been Kirk Allen, the original radio Super or uh, Buzz Col- Bud Collier rather, but he would say Mix Pickle, Mix Pickle. And he'd be oh, all Mix angry. Pickle? That's how he would say it. And then uh, Mixius Pitalik would, of course, you know, correct him. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. And maybe that was a way to get him to say Kilpixlim or whatever, however you say the, the, the word backwards and everything. Too funny, man. You're killing me.
Um, <laughs> well, while, what else, while we're talking, what else can we nerd out about? Let's do this. Well, you know, of course, uh, lots of Star Trek news, both rumor and fact. I uh, first of all, the fact interesting that the showrunners of Discovery uh, left, and now uh, Alex Kurtzman running things, and not only uh, the uh, Discovery series, but talking big about other miniseries and even potentially animated series. And it's like, well, yeah, it's about goddamn time. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I don't know, man. Star Trek, my friend. Talk to me. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know what to say anymore. Interesting. I, Talk to me. <laughs> I, I I don't know, and I love you. We've talked many hours on Star Trek, and you know how much I love it. I have Rikers. I have a Riker collect, a growing Riker collection on my current job desk right now. Nice. Um, but dude, they fire their showrunners. They're shooting. Season two, yes, right now, yes, there's somewhere in episode two, three, or four of shooting, yeah, and they have fired the showrunners. Now, many other shows have done that as well. It's kind of like Ron Howard coming in on Solo, yeah. but on a television show, your showrunners are your captains. They're the ones telling you when to start, when to finish, what to do, what's the theme, what's the tone, what's the twist. Everything is the showrunner's approval. I'm so nodding. what the hell were they doing that CBS said, get out of the building? Well, you read the reports. They were apparently abusive to their writer staff. I mean, that's that's the word. That was the Yeah, it's, you know, I, 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 I have. Um, so in, in my new current job, uh, which I, I, I still don't know if I'm I can I'm allowed to say what it is. OK, so I'll, I'll just say. But I, I have gotten into some connections of some people that worked or have worked for Star Trek Discovery. Okay. And they have confirmed everything that is in those reports. Well, there you go. Okay. So, yes, it apparently is a quite a terrible and despicable working situation from everything that I have been told. Wow. And that's sad, man, because Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know about you or what you know, your love has always been radio, correct? Like, you know, getting on the radio, talking to, talking to the people, talking to the audience, sure. correct? Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm doing what I wanted to do as far as broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, so, so when you got to <laughs> broadcasting, like when you got to your first broadcasting job, didn't you just feel joy and love? You're like, wow, I'm here. I can't believe it. Yes, I did. Right? right. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I, I felt that away in a couple of my jobs, too. Where sure. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm here. And you just kind of sort of become ecstatic and joyful. Now, Starter Discovery, one, if you're if you're lucky enough to be a television writer, what a what a ball of joy. You're getting to write television. You're getting to create on such a massive scale that millions of people are going to see. Okay, that should just fill you with joy. Sure. But two, if you're working on a show like Star Trek with that amazing legacy, shouldn't that double down the joy? Yeah. Shouldn't it shouldn't it be like, oh man, I'm on the bridge now. This is amazing. <laughs> So for the fact that these showrunners turned it into, oh, screw you, screw you, F you, and, and out the airlock with you is insane. Agreed. Well, and also, Star Trek itself has this um, history of difficult writers' rooms, so you'd think they'd learn from the past. <laughs> right? You know, and I, uh, yeah. I mean, because again, um, and we probably have talked about Chaos on the Bridge, the, doc yes. the documentary about Next Generation and its growing pains. Um, you know, so yeah, maybe, maybe this is another similar situation, but again, it's, it's so ironic or also the 50 year mission, the oral history, two great books that I can't recommend yeah, enough. They're, as a, and they're I, amazing, yeah, but they're also sad to read. They are sad to read because again, 
it turns out that the people, the writers that were, you know, the uber nerdiest about Star Trek and were so excited to finally tell their stories, they were almost ostracized. And, oh, they're the geeks. Don't do that. We don't want want writers who love Star Trek. And I understand, I get it from a macro standpoint, that maybe there would be too much respect to canon, and therefore you wouldn't come up with original stories and innovative stories because of a, a, a level of respect for what's come before. But I also think that I don't know. I don't hear that in Star Wars Star Wars writers' rooms. I mean, I, no. I you know we got it a little bit, I guess, with the solo directors. But you know, I mean, it it seemed like everyone kind of is on the same page and moving in the right direction. And also, I mean, you and I are huge Star Trek fans. And John, please tell me how much did they actually follow canon in Star Trek <laughs> Discovery season one? Because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're in a they're in a completely new reboot. They're not in the same universe. Yeah, well, and again, it's it, it's going to be interesting. They they claim that they will explain uh, canon in the second season. We'll see. I'm shrugging. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm shrugging as well. But again, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, and and really, man, I, I it seemed to me episode to episode, I had more problems with Discovery than you and Ash did. And um, it, I I can only say that with my frustration, I'm still like, hey, I'm still on board. I'm still coming back. And, I mean, my hope is, much like some of the clunky early Next Generation episodes, I can't watch season one, most of season one. Oh, you're true. And season two, yeah. Well, you know, and honestly, I like season two a little bit better. I'd say, okay. you know, I, I think there's some measure of a man good episode, the uh, the data Sherlock Holmes. And I even like Dr. Pulaski being a jerk. I'm okay with Dr. <laughs> Pulaski. Or Riker's dad, that's a good episode. I, I always saw I always saw Dr. Pulaski as Bones with the dress. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. It's basically Bones. You know, and she's such Dana Mulder, first of all, has her ties. She's a great actress. She's a great actress. Great actress, ties to the original series in a couple roles. Mm-hmm. Um LA Law was amazing in LA Law. Uh, there are so many you know. Star Trek TNG and D especially TNG guest actors that were on LA Law. <laughs> I didn't know that. And that's also a Paramount show. So I literally think that every time they wanted to cast somebody new, they just walked over to the soundstage right next to him, knocked on the door and said, who's not shooting tomorrow? You, Corbin Burnson, get on the show. When Corbin Burnson had amazing hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because remember, he was a Q. Yes, indeed. That's a great episode. You know, you know, I work overnights and uh, a lot of times I've got uh, BBC America on in my studio with, with the sound down. And they were showing that uh, episode where uh, Corbin Burnson was on. I was waiting for you to tell me that BBC America was now airing L.A. Law. And I was like, really? Well, you know, you got uh, Alex Kingston, River Song. That was her. That was one of her early shows. I had no idea. she was. I knew Jimmy Smith was on that show. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't know Alex Kingston was on that show. Yep. By the way, she is stunning in real life. You've never seen her in real life. She's I, amazing. I bet. And that doesn't surprise me. And again, man, she was lovely then. So that's, you know, yeah, she's still. That's great to hear. Malin Ackerman is my. Uh, face to face, where I'm like, oh my god, uh, what what charisma? And <laughs> really, I'm like, and luckily I, I held my shit together at the uh, at the Watchmen junket when I was talking to her. But uh, oh, that's cool, man. No, she was great. Yeah, that was that. So <laughs> there's my experience Let- with a lovely with a lovely actor, and it's just like ah da da. You just brought up something that I want to ask you about. Talk to me. So you again have the ability that you were alive when Watchmen was hitting the stands. Sure. Uh, yes, I was. I, well, I was alive Young too. Man. I just wasn't. I wasn't cognizant. <laughs> I so, understand. Uh, <laughs> Talk to me. Yes, no, of course, that was my uh, what are you? What are your? Go on. 
what what are your feelings on this new Watchmen TV show that might not be connected a sequel? They haven't really right. explained it that it's a sequel, not a sequel, yeah. connected, not connected. What do you feel about this? Can a Watchmen TV show like this work? I th- well, I think that universe is very interesting, and I like that Damon Lindelof is thinking along those lines because that way. Uh, it would be interesting to see what happened the day after, if that's mm-hmm. if that's the plan, or if we're going back to when the Minutemen were, uh, or not the yeah, was it the Minutemen? Not the Minutemen. Yeah, it's the it's the Minutemen. Okay, isn't is it, yeah, it's the Minutemen. The first group's the Minutemen. The second group's the Watchmen. That's right, of course. Yeah. So yeah. so yeah, I'm not sure exactly where they're placing this, but I do think it's an interesting universe to play in, and um, yeah, I'm 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 okay with it in the same way that. Uh, Westworld is so different than the uh, great James Brolin, Richard Benjamin, Yul Brenner movie. Agreed. And I mean, that's the. Th- I mean, really, man. If if uh, younger li- listeners have not watched the Westworld movie because, like, well, it's the seventies. I don't know. It's a tremendous film, and really it's goes good. from a comedy to a suspense film at the drop of a hat. And it's and it's really nice how that that all sets up, and I and I think it holds up very well. I agree. I, I, however, do not recommend watching the sequel of Future World. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Don't watch that movie. Blythe Denner and uh, Peter Fonda. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting. I was like crossing my fingers, hoping the Future World was going to somehow be introduced on the new HBO show. It d- hasn't happened so far. <laughs> but I want them to do it because I'm like, if anybody can redeem that movie, it's, it's, it's Jonathan Nolan. <laughs> Could be. Could be, but yeah, I mean that. So that's why I'm I'm uh, I'm okay with it. I, I and also I'm a little more forgiving to the movie. I mean the movie isn't, it's not perfect. I am too, you know. But I I, I like it better than a lot of people. Well, that's good. To I, I I will honestly admit that I really did not like it the first time I saw the Watchmen Zack Snyder movie. But having watched the director's cut, which I do think is better, yes, and seen it several times, I do think. It's it's a much better movie than people get it give it credit for, and I've actually learned to appreciate it as the years have gone by. I'm interested now uh, to see much in the same way that uh, Batman v Superman uh, is a you know the director's cut of that was a better cut than what we first got. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that we may see a Justice League cut. I hope. Do you th- do you think? I don't think we'll ever see a justly cut. Do you think we're going to see a justly cut? I thought that cut? was the well, and again, you know, I, I'm reading Bleeding Cool, so maybe I should be, you know. <laughs> Sorry, Rich. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's all good. Uh, you know, I, I like Rich. It's all good. Well, and again, hey, back to Star Trek. How about these hot rumors? Uh, I would love hot takes. Let's do it. Yeah, man. Well, you know, good <laughs> lord. First of all, I was thrilled when the Tarantino rumors started, and all of a sudden, Patrick Stewart's like. Uh, I want to be in a Tarantino movie. I'll be I'll be John Luke Picard <laughs> in a Tarantino Star Trek, and we all went yes, Hell, please. Yes, he would because Tarantino is one of these actors that he basically shepherds actors into Oscars. Yes, can you imagine? We we already know that we live in the darkest timeline. We do, <laughs> and if you haven't accepted that by now, then you're clearly not watching the news. Yeah. Or seeing that, you know, the fact that we have two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, Wonder Woman and Ant-Man, two <laughs> Ant-Man sequels. We are in the darkest Bizarro timeline. So if we are in the darkest Bizarro timeline, that naturally to me says that there is a good possibility 
that Patrick Stewart could win his only Oscar for playing Captain John Luke Picard <laughs> in a Tarantino Star Wars Star Trek movie. I'd Excuse like me. to thank the Federation for this award. That'd be awesome. That'd be fantastic. This is God. Now you see, here's my age with Saturday Night Live. Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest used to do these janitor characters, and mm. they had one episode where it was before the Oscars, and uh, they're like, "Hey, let's take those uh, results from Price and Waterhouse and switch them over so that the best picture could be." And they go, Avenging Angel, which is a, <laughs> which is a horrible 80s, you know, revenge movie and stuff. And we, we could be in those kind of dark times. And uh, that... In the world we live in, dude, anything is possible. So get, <laughs> buckle up. Jesus. And then Ian McKellen will, will run up on stage. He'll get Best Supporting Actor for playing the Klingon villain. Ooh, that'd be good. Hey, <laughs> right? hey man, Christopher Plummer did it. it it's, uh, there's already a Shakespearean precedent, so why not? That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I don't know. Um. You know, it's interesting. I uh, the Tarantino Star Trek movie is such an interesting idea, and I understand if you're Paramount why you go for it. Sure. And I sure as hell want to read that script. Do I think that movie will ever happen? I actually don't think it ever will. I don't <laughs> think it'll happen. It's too ludicrous, I think, to happen to exist. But I, I would watch that movie. I would, I would be there opening night just to see what the hell is it. Well, and I don't know how this new Mission Impossible will do, but Paramount has really been hurting as far as taking a lot Isn't of. Isn't Paramount always hurting? Well, I Aren't can appre- always well, like- and again. I can appreciate that as far as recent memory goes. Um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, you're. I mean, it certainly seems of all the major studios, and while we're watching all these mergers happening and stuff. Um, yeah, Paramount seems to be the one that gambles, and the the, the gambles don't pay off. Um, no, I so I, I think I I I think this new Mission Impossible is going to blow huge. I really do. Um, I've seen some of the CinemaCon footage uh, around the bend from various people. It looks amazing. Henry Cavill's really good in it. The mustache looks great. The mustache that killed <laughs> Justice League looks great. <laughs> But it's it's exciting. It's 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 an exciting movie, and I I'm I, Christopher McQuarrie is a hell of a director sure. writer. He's he's one hell of a combination, and that this to me sell, tells me something that he's the only director to have been brought back for this franchise. Mm-hmm. So well, I and I agree. It's in, it is interesting though because obviously what used to be able to be the right combination for a blockbuster film doesn't always work anymore. And no. man, who, who I forget which publication just did that. Was it Variety? I forget which one that talked about. You know how Will Smith always was a guaranteed summer hit. Yes, and those days are gone. And no, those days are long. And gone. Adam Sandler, yeah. I think, was the, the other one. And of course, those days are very long gone. But yeah, that is that is the thing. The star does not determine the blockbuster yes. anymore. And Tom Cruise is definitely from that era, yes. but. Mission Impossible is his only franchise when you think about yeah, it. Yeah. And Mission Impossible so far has been a very successful franchise. Well, Jack Reacher too, but yeah, I I I think you're right. I think, I think the second Jack Reacher bombed. Yeah. It did not do well. Yeah. Cuz it was a terrible movie. But um <laughs> first the first Jack Reacher is a good movie. Why? Cuz it's written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie. There you go too. Good point. So there that's that's the secret sauce of that one. That's a very good point. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, and that is that's what's interesting. Hell, I uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge uh, Spencer for Hire fan and the Robert Parker novels, and was excited about the Netflix news that 
there's going to be a Spencer uh, Netflix series. Mark Wahlberg as as Spencer. Um, I don't, what seriously? Yeah, which I, I I don't understand either as far as casting. But I got to tell you, um, I do remember those if they were the '90s or early 2000s when Joe Montana played Spencer and he was completely physically wrong. Spencer's first oh, of all man. not Italian. I lo- I love Joe Montana, Chicago's very own. Mm-hmm. Tremendous actor and and did fine if you walked into that and I, uh, the reason why it comes to mind is in the same way with Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher, if you read the novels, he's supposed to be basketball tall. Well, that's not yeah. Tom he's Cruise, he, you know yeah. Lee Child in the novels, I love those novels by the way. Describes <laughs> him as a man you don't want to meet in an alleyway. <laughs> and that is not Tom Cruise. That's not Tom Cruise, man. No, it's not Tom Cruise at all. <laughs> but you know the one thing the one thing about this Mission Impossible movies and seeing the new footage and stuff like that has made me decide is that I'm pretty very I'm very certain now that we are going to see Tom Cruise die on camera. I think it is going to happen. Um I think he's just crazy enough that it is there is a shot in the trailer of this new Mission Impossible movie where he is driving like a bat out of hell on a motorcycle and he's driving down the street. The camera is like rigged to his bike, you can tell he's looking back at the camera. He's not wearing a helmet. So you can tell it's tom cruise a car comes out of nowhere and he t-bones it and flips over the car (laughs) tom cruise billion dollar scientologist flipping (laughs) over this car in in paris he's good this man we are gonna watch this man die on camera because his stunts are gonna be crazier and crazier i mean the last movie he was like yeah i'm gonna hang outside of a plane you take off Yeah, I no that. sane person does that. No, he's our he is Hollywood's evil Knievel. He really is. Oh, that's a great way to describe him. That's a good that's a good At, term. Well, again, from my era, <laughs> I I, <laughs> we, I remember watching Evil's uh, Bones break on live TV. Absolutely, man. Oh my god. Oh, it's the sad truth, man. Good lord, <laughs> those documentaries are incredible, and yeah, they're they're very vivid, <laughs> very vivid. What was do do you, is there a specific one that you remember where you're like, oh my god, the one where it was I want to say where he jumped over the semis in London. And, I've and seen he, that one. Fell, I've seen the YouTube. He falls over the the handlebars, and the bike runs over him, and he broke his uh, like his hip or whatever it was, but still got up to his feet and and kind of hobbled over to the microphone and thanked everyone before he passed out. I mean, you know, it's yeah, that one. I mean, and of course, Snake River. I remember that well as well. Um, well what one? What one was Snake River? Snake River Canyon was his. He it wasn't even a motorcycle. He kind of created kind of a like rocket that he rode and he was supposed to like, first he wanted to do the grand Canyon. That was his ambition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then of course somebody, you know, showed him the tape measure and said, yeah, that's not like going to happen. Physics will not work that way. <laughs> You're going down evil. This isn't a good idea. So they did, they tried the snake river and it was a failed attempt and it was a smaller Canyon. Uh, you know, so, and then he, he closed out. Uh, one of his last jumps was uh, here in Chicago where he did, uh, the Happy Days Fonzie jump over the shark, uh, over oh, cool. a pool with a shark, and that happened in Chicago. That was an easy one for him. But yeah, the one the one that uh, I really remember was yeah with the semis and and the bike running him over him. After to betray to betray my age, <laughs> the only thing that I can think about on television that is even close to comparable is when David Copperfield used to do all those television specials. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, I freaked out. <laughs> I remember asking my mom how they were going to bring it back and would the United States government be mad? 
I'd like to protest Mr. Copperfield's trick. <laughs> Not that I believe in the statue anymore. Um, yikes. Yeah, man. Well, I, uh, I'm trying to think what, what other nerd news as we, uh, as I don't, we wrap. I don't know. What, what, can we, what can we talk about here? What, can we, uh, what has been happening Well, like lately? I said, I haven't, I haven't seen Solo. I, I, everyone I know who's seen it loved it. So I'm, and I'm certainly not a hater, and I'm just uh, it, like I'm not in that crowd. I did not love it. Oh, okay. What would... I am not in that crowd. All right. Uh, y- y- I'll say this. Um, to me, Solo is the Star Wars movie where, man, everybody's gonna be like, this guy just doesn't like Disney. Um, so <laughs> I do love Disney because Gargoyles is one of my favorite things ever, and I can't believe they haven't rebooted Hilarious. it. So, uh, anyways, back up a little bit uh, to Solo. Solo is just the most unnecessary movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Everything they have, everything that you see in that movie, we have been told about in another movie. And when we finally see it, it's just not interesting because we know exactly how it's going to go. Okay. And to me, Solo is the Star Wars movie that made Star Wars not special for me anymore. And I know a lot of people are about like, what about the prequels? Well, I'm a big Obi-Wan Kenobi fan. And lightsaber fights, to me, are still cool. Mm-hmm. And every one of those movies had that. There are no lightsaber battles in Solo. Spoilers. So, um, I, I don't know. It, nothing about it seems special to me. And the entire time I was watching this movie... I kept saying to myself, why didn't they combine this movie with the Boba Fett movie that we've all been dreaming about seeing since 1983, where it's Boba Fett going around being a badass? Why aren't we doing Smokey and the Bandit, where the Bandit is Solo and Smokey is Boba Fett? That's hilarious. Where's where's that movie? That's a good idea. There you go. Right? We need you in that writer's room. There you go, Jason. I'm telling you, man. Dave (laughs) Filoni, call me up, my friend. Um, Do you like like the guy who played Solo? Uh, he was okay. I, I, I thought, to, tough, to me... Tough challenge, obviously. Oh, 100%, man. There's... Uh, no Whoever walked into that role was going to be v- very judged. And I, I, I feel... I cannot remember the actor's name for the yeah, life I, of me. I always... I can never remember his name either. I liked him a lot in that Warren Beatty Howard Hughes movie. Yes, Rules he's great apply. in Hail Caesar, too. And he's great. I was going to say the same thing. I thought he was yeah. terrific in Hail Caesar. So I, I am walking into this liking the kid. So um, I thought he he didn't figure out a way to get past impression. OK. You know um, how Star Trek 2009, Chris Pine is not doing a William Shatner impression, Agreed. but yes, he has the energy of Kirk and he has the attitude of Kirk. yes, the swagger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dead on. But he's not doing an impression yeah. of. Shatner, yeah, this kid leans way too much an impression. He 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 does so much of an impression of um, Han Solo that he mumbles like Harrison Ford does now in real life. <laughs> oh, he's is like Andy Kaufman with uh, or uh, Jim yeah. Carrey with Angie Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, stuck in he's the role. Very, yes, he's very mumbly, for my opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, Yikes. but everybody else, everybody else in the movie is great. Um, uh, Donald Glover is great as Lando. That's what I, I, keep I would hearing. love to see a. I'd love to see a Lando movie. Woody Harrelson's great as Beckett. Cool. Paul Paul Bettany is great for his little scene as a reshoots thing as the new villain. Yeah. Um, he's good, and then then the uh, Khaleesi is great as well. Cool. They're all good. 
So it, it's just the there's a good movie in there, but um, I don't feel for me I didn't see it. I didn't get what I needed out of a Star Wars movie because again, Star Wars to me really Star Wars movies are events to me. They need to be right. special. Agreed. Yeah, and I and it wasn't special enough. It was just hey, we're going to show you all the stuff that we always told you about. And to me, it kind of came off as a best hits clip show. Interesting. All right. Well, that'll be interesting as I walk into that. Hopefully, uh, before the Fourth of July, I, um, I, I want to. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned about uh, them saying, well, then maybe we're rushing these uh, standalone movies. And it's like, well, don't throw the bath, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Hold on a second. Nobody said that just because you made one misfire. It, it was bound to happen. And also, again, I don't know. I, I want to see it and judge it for myself because yeah. I think these expectations. And please do. Well, of course. But I think these expectations are set way too high. It is a Star Wars movie. I'm shrugging and I can appreciate it to a degree. But I also think, you know, it's like, well, we only made $300 million. I know they spent more than that on the movie. Oh, they, they probably spent seven hundred million. Eas- <laughs> oh, easily because they basically reshot the movie that completely. Too. Yeah, that too. You're right. For for because just going off of the Directors Guild of America rules, you have to have shot. I believe it's somewhere between. Uh, God, I don't. The number I think is seventy five percent of the movie. You're right. Has to be your footage to be directed by, and it says directed by Ron Howard. So that means he reshot seventy five percent of the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know, and I, and that is another thing that intrigues me. So, how do you think he handled things as a director? Uh, I think he did a good job. I think Ron Howard, one thing I like about Ron Howard is that all of his movies are well shot. Yes. Solo is well shot. It's a beautiful movie. He's got great cinematography. The pacing is pretty good. The editing is good. Um, he He's solid. The The biggest problem to me, again, with, with Solo was the idea, like, again, it's telling us stuff, it's showing us stuff we've already seen, and it's kind of structured like an late 80s early 90s action movie so there are no real twists or turns or surprises and modern audiences i feel are pretty we're pretty smart because of all the streaming television we see now where game of thrones lost keep on name every mystery show like audiences are pretty smart now and i think if you just give them a 90s action movie or an 80s action movie we know every twist we know every turn we know exactly how it's going to happen Agreed. And I think uh, you're right about that. And again, that's where the blockbuster is right now, where it does yeah. have to compete with what they can do with streaming television. And uh, we're, at, we're at a really interesting point with entertainment where uh, we are where. Yeah. It, like the move, the blockbuster film, well, films in general are kind of trying to find their footing in this new era of streaming television where we get more complex story and characters and, uh, you know, uh, the 13-hour streaming season versus the two plus hour, you know, blockbuster film. What does it give us? Think, yeah. Think about this. Um, the most successful film out there right now is Avengers infinity war. Right. Why is Avengers infinity war so successful? Because it is part 19. <laughs> I'm not certain. I'm not certain of the number. It, it is part 19 of the longest television season that you've ever yes. seen on the movie screen. Agreed. Seriously. Absolutely. And the reason the reason why we're we were blown away by that ending is because we spent 20 movies with these characters. Yeah. Agreed. It's interesting because I was reading an article, I cannot remember who published it, it's a variety or 
uh, it might have been the Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, excuse me, who said that they hated Avengers Infinity War. Now, I don't agree with that statement. I love Avengers Infinity War because I, I, I admire the cojones they had to do that ending. Agreed. But they argued, they argued against it because they said that it was the death of film because it's the idea of, oh, they're just saying, oh, television episodes. Every movie has to set up the next movie. Every movie can't be on its own. And that is an interesting, intriguing argument to me because I love Avengers Infinity War, but I understand that argument because when you look at it, it is just setting up Avengers 4 yeah. and Captain Marvel and XYZ. And then you look at a film like A Quiet Place, which is masterful and genius and so powerful. And that is a movie that if you made a sequel to it would ruin it. Of course. So I don't know. I see both sides of the argument. It's very interesting. Well, I do too. But I, but I also think that uh, just as in the past, movies don't have to be one thing. And I and, oh, agree. And that's the that's the and and just as you said, uh, my my uh, the only thing I would say about Infinity War, the only negative is, I would warn someone that hasn't watched all the Marvel movies. Well, don't walk into this without really knowing what's happened because you are going to be disappointed because you do need to have seen. Uh, the other movies, because then you really do appreciate uh, what they did and, and different pieces of dialogue or even plot points that do pay off that were, you know, planted seeds that were planted back in the first Iron Man movie. And I think that's terrific. But again, that's that's that style of movie. And like you say, Quiet Place is a good contrast to that. Um, it is tough to find that audience for that or, you know, I'm sure you're aware, Jodie Foster complaining a couple months ago that the types of movies that she made are not the types of movies that are succeeding at the box office these days. And she's not sure where, where, what her place is or the types of movies she wants to do in today's entertainment, you know, atmosphere. Yeah, All legitimate 100%. concerns. But again, mm -hmm. you know, you change with the times. And um, again, I think now the onus is back on movies to, okay, what can you do with two hours? And, you know, it, it you got to rethink things. And, again, that's why the studios are, are rethinking their strategies as well. It's, it, it's, it's fascinating. It really is very interesting. And, again, I, I don't th – the good news is, um, you know, then, then Jody, I would say to her, and I think she's uh, talking about doing it. In fact, Why the Last Man, as I understand. She's, oh, she's yeah. She talks for Why, which I think would be fantastic for her. Oh, I think she'd be great as York's mother. Absolutely. I think that's perfect. <laughs> That is perfect, perfect casting. Yeah, it reminds, um, yeah. It reminds me when Glenn Close uh, turned to TV in the early 2000s after movies and had such success with The Shield and I forget the, the, the court show that she did for FX as well. Oh, man, you know, you blew my – I love The Shield and, and I just forgot I, – I even forgot that she was on that, sh that show. That show is amazing. Yeah, and Damages was the court show too. And I mean that's yes, the thing. Yes, that's right. And so, so yeah, I mean that's – again, I think these binge-watching shows – I mean, uh, isn't Sigourney Weaver on Legion? I'm, I'm blanking already. Uh, no. I haven't seen the second season, so if she is, I don't know. Okay, well, I thought she was even in the first season, too, because I'll confess I haven't watched the second season yet either. Oh, no, Sigourney is not in the first season. All right, then it's some other – was it Gene Smart? It was Gene Smart. It's Gene Smart, yep. yes. And then Jermaine Clement is in that season yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. So, so, but yeah, you know, Designing Women's Gene Smart, yes. <laughs> She's always <laughs> – it's true. That was her sitcom. <laughs> but I have to say, hell, even wasn't it Garden State? Yeah, she's um, 
She's Peter uh, uh, Skarsgård's uh, mother. Yeah, Skarsgård's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, I mean, that's the she's thing. She's actually she's a terrific actress beyond you know what she did, what she did in designing women. I always thought. I mean, that's honestly like that. Or, <laughs> it's gonna be, you know that's gonna be the top of her of her obituary <laughs> of though. I mean, is. honestly, oh, it's like it, it's it was Fred Gwynn and Herman Munster exactly. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> Delta Burke is that right? Delta Burke, absolutely. Annie Potts, you know, here, of course. Let's, Yep, Annie. Oh, Annie Potts is such a treasure. She's in a new movie. I just saw a trailer for her. She's in some new independent movie, and I, and I saw this her profile, and then they cut away from her, and I was like, "Is that Annie Potts?" <laughs> <laughs> Bendis got her to do Ghostbusters. What do you want uh, for uh, his uh, answering machine? I do know that. Oh my God! Was, was Annie Potts just like over at his house? How did this I happen? For, I forget what the circumstances were, but he got to meet Annie Potts, and he said, "You got to record Ghostbusters. What do you want for me?" And she did it. All right, John. I'm gonna. I'm gonna because uh, I'm also an interviewer too. I'm gonna ask you another question here, it. my friend. No, no. It's always a pleasure, buddy. Is there a comic book thing? Can be a book. Can be a movie. Because you talk a lot. You talk to a lot of creators. You talk to a lot of smart, genius men and women. What's the comic book thing out there that excites you the most? Is there a comic book out there? A movie? A television show? Like, what's the thing that you're just like, man? I really want to see this, or I'm very curious about this. Well, honestly, the why uh, television adaptation it does intrigue me, and I think will be a big, huge hit. And I've been waiting for it ever since they were talking about a why movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would really be groundbreaking. Um, the Watchmen, the Watchmen uh, sequel interests me. Doomsday Clock is. I'm enjoying Doomsday Clock. I think it's. Chugging along just fine. I am a little happy that they're uh, opening the purse strings as far as uh, the DC Universe. And because of the fact that it's it's going to take longer than they expected, that it's okay that the JSA and Shazam will likely uh, appear before before the end of the Doomsday Clock. That's okay. I think that's a good, that's a good option. And Jeff Johns, good Jeff Johns getting his own uh, production deal, I think, is a really smart move where, you know, sometimes it's, it's just like uh, in the uh, broadcast business when they made Edward R. Murrow. An executive, and it's like, no man, this guy's a broadcaster. Let him do his thing. And the same with Jeff. Jeff's a storyteller. We, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, let him let him develop some TV shows on his own. Let him uh, let him uh, get back to the creative side, because I think when you put him in the executive office, you were just uh, taking away his best tools, and because he was overseeing everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, I'm intrigued by that. Um, let's see. I'm I'm really happy Mark Wade is back on Doctor Strange. I loved his uh, miniseries, and I haven't cracked open. I bought the uh, the first two issues of his current run, but I know he's getting back to where he was doing it a couple of years ago and stuff. And taking nothing away from Donny Cates, who I thought did an excellent job with. Oh, I, yeah, Donny Cates' run and Jason Aaron's run was great, absolutely, too. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, no, I'm, I'm really excited about all the various different musical chairs. Scotty Young doing Dare, uh, Deadpool right now. I, I can't think of a, a better uh, combination mm-hmm. of hero and creator. And Bendis is kicking ass with Superman. I'm really excited. Can't wait to see what the uh, final shoe will be with uh, King and the marriage of Catwoman and Batman. It's a very good time for comic books in the mainstream. And then also, uh, God, I, as uh, Brew Baker and Sean Phillips wrap up Killer Be Killed, they're looking forward to their graphic novel mm-hmm. coming out in a few months. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's a lot of shit. Kelly Sue joining uh, DC in the Black... Uh, Label or whatever the hell it's called. I'm very, I'm very intrigued to read her Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. So I'm bummed that we're not getting Fractions Jimmy Olsen. I think that would have been fantastic. Oh, is that definite now? Well, I don't. Well, maybe. Yeah, maybe things have changed and maybe they're reconsidering. I hope that's the case. I, I honestly don't know. I just, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Well, I know he, I know he pitched them something, and I think I thought I heard that it didn't uh, make it. All right. So we'll see. But uh, no, I think honestly, and I really do. Uh, I think Marvel is uh, 
despite their recent, uh, you know, nicks and, and bruises that they took. I think that uh, CB and company, I think they're really, you know, going in good directions. And I, and I think uh, their future is, you know, looking good as well. So, no, I, I think it's a really good time right now, comic book wise. There's a lot of things that I'm excited about. And it's hurting me in the wallet saying that. Because <laughs> I don't get the comps <laughs> the, I used to. The one that I am very, yeah. very excited for, and a lot of this has to do with listening to your podcast. I am so excited to read Dan Slott's Fantastic Four. Agreed. So when he, oh man, when he was on your show about a year ago and you guys had like a four-hour episode or something like that, or you had a two-parter, it was really <laughs> it long. Was really I long all it was really long it was a two-parter. Go on. Yeah, he, <laughs> he talked a lot about the Fantastic Four. And when you did the Spider-Man wrap-up yeah. where he just randomly cold-called you, <laughs> he spent... He spent more time almost talking about the Fantastic Four than he did to Spider-Man. So to me, I don't know. I, Dan Slott, the thing I love about his, his Spider-Man run so much is how much he expanded the world of Peter Parker. Yes. And, you know, Peter, before Dan, had kind of got stuck in a rut where it was like, okay, he's always going to be poor and he's always going to work for the Daily Planet and he's always going to do this. And Dan, I love how he was like, no, he's going to be a scientist. Yep. Now he's going to be a CEO, and now he's going to be this guy. That you don't have to be stuck in this rut. And that's what the Fantastic Four is to me, is opening new worlds, exploring new Agreed. worlds, new concepts, new things. So to take that mindset and give it to the Fantastic Four, I'm, I'm really excited to see. And also, he just loves Benjamin J. Grimm as much as I do, and I can't <laughs> wait. Uh, his his thing... His thing miniseries from back in the day is like one of the hidden gems of Marvel Comics. So I'm excited to see what he does when he has a full time. I couldn't agree more. And again, that's why we, we spent so much time talking about the times that he has written the Fantastic Four in the past. He No, he gets the four. And, uh, and I'm really glad that, uh, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're finally bringing back a Fantastic Four book. Because in the right hands, uh, you know, the, it, they're, they're great to read. They're, they're the best. And again, like you said earlier, the Incredibles are as close as we've been getting to really good Fantastic Four stories. Um, but there really is. There's just something great about that. And I know, uh, yeah, Dan's not afraid to expand the universe of these characters. And Iron Man too. I think, uh, I think these franchises are in great hands. And yeah, Dan himself is, I think, uh, kind of one of those secret weapons of Marvel that uh, gets overlooked. And and again, because it's like, well, yeah, it's Spider-Man, so it should be good. So it's like kind of yes. like we expect it and we kind of demand it. So when it is, I think he was almost being overlooked in terms of, uh, again, ten and a half years of doing Spider-Man and doing really interesting things with Spider-Man. And like I said, that one podcast was fascinating to listen to where the one host is like, oh, you please, Dan Slot," And the other three hosts are like, are you nuts? And they really presented a very fair case of really explaining the different villains and the and the like you said horizon labs and and really working on the character and it's like you know when all is said and done dan's really gonna have a run that you have to compare to roger stern and some of the best jerry conway and wolfman and all the great spider-man writers and it's like absolutely yeah absolutely you have to he's in there he he definitely have to compare him it's in yep. there no it's it's an interesting time and and again um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what Hickman is going to do now that he's back at Marvel. Um, mm -hmm. that's, I think really interesting. And, um, yeah, I think, honestly, I think, I think both companies 
with the musical chairs that have happened recently, I think, uh, yeah, they're in really good positions. And then again, I mean, Image and all the other publishers, including Action Lab, uh, you know, coming up with really interesting ideas. It's a good time. It's almost too good of a time because there are so many great books to choose from. So it's tough out there. 100%. 100%, man. There you go, man. Well, we can wrap up. I know you're uh, you got a you got a busy day tomorrow, and I uh... I got a very I got a very early morning tomorrow at the new gig. Uh, yes, so uh, I have to, I have to get my sleep time, and I have to go read some old uh, I have to read some old Superman issues for this uh, prose book thing I'm working Excellent. on. Excellent. Oh, good. That ho- hopefully when that comes out, I can come back on of and be like, can. hey, man. So we also have to have the powwow after a Star Trek Discovery season two as well. We have to. Oh, definitely. Oh my God, when it's up maybe, and running, again. maybe do a triple threat or, or or quadruple threat where it's like you, me, Robert Meyer Burnett, and Ashley. That would be great. <laughs> I'm certainly for. Can it. you imagine that episode? Oh my oh, God! Well, again, I was you guys. Uh, you guys <laughs> scared me when you're like, I don't. We don't know if we're going to do a final episode. I'm like, you've got to do a final episode of, of Discovery. My God. Oh man. Um. Yeah. So we. <laughs> I remember. So just to let the listeners in. Um. So. We were on a plane flying to Planet Comic Con in Kansas City mm-hmm. the the day, the exact time that Star Trek Discovery, uh, the finale, landed. And then the very next day, it was like, uh, I don't know if we're going to do a review because we're really tired. <laughs> and yeah, you did text me. You were like, you have to do a review. <laughs> well, it's like writing a mystery novel and never doing the final chapter. It's like, come on, man. Yep. You got to, you know. <laughs> well, it's a little different uh, for the YouTube model, but I but I understand your comparison. <laughs> but you did, and that's good. And uh, yeah. no, I uh, I like I said, I uh, ever uh, disappointed, but ever the optimist. I, I me too. I, I certainly yeah. Let's 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 hope for the best in season two, and I and I truly hope that uh, you know Alex Kurtzman talking a big game when it comes to Trek. So uh, no, I would love to have uh, you and Ash and uh, and Robert together, and we could do a foursome and really. Uh, hash things out you know rob's the as you know rob's the chess master we're all just you know we're, we're he's our oh. bobby fisher we're, we're all just like okay whatever you say rob and i mean that in the positive chess way not the crazy way so oh yeah 100 yeah, <laughs> percent. like yeah he's our he's not gonna he's, punch a russian in a back right, room he's somewhere. our boris spasky yeah. if that's better or, or uh who's the, yeah. i forget the guy who played deep blue oh god i couldn't even tell well, you. There you i'm terrible in jeopardy <laughs> Well, get your sleep, but but Jupiter Jet. But you ask me a Star Trek question, and I'm there. That a boy. Yes. All right. Good deal. <laughs> so yes, congratulations on Jupiter Jet. It is. Uh, Thank you, man. Absolutely. The volume is out. Uh, get your store to order it if you haven't already, and enjoy a great all ages adventure with uh, very positive characters, but really fun all ages action that the whole family will enjoy. And I say that that's right sincerely. So uh, and you can and you can tell your whole family that. Your book is also in Brian Michael Bendis's library, and they'll be like, "Huh? <laughs> who? <laughs> yeah, who? Exactly." And you'll be like, "The guy writing Superman. Shut up, Ma." <laughs> Jason, good to talk to you, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. There you go, Jason Inman, Jupiter Jet. It's available now. Hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon Unconventional. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support via Patreon. If you enjoy Word Balloon and would like to support the show and subscribe, go to patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Let's look at some of the new books that are available this week in InStock Trades. Ex Machina, the complete series. Good Lord, what a great story, man. Brian K. Vaughn, Tony Harris. Truly one of my absolute favorites. 50% off. It's just $75 at InStockTrades.com. You can get the Marvel Masterworks Captain America Volume 10 
And this is a great hunk of Jack Kirby, not only doing the art, but doing the writing as well. Uh, it includes the Captain America Bicentennial Battles, which was such a great Marvel Treasury book back in the day. It's a crazy story, but it is so Kirby at, like, his absolute peak. This is 312 pages. It also collects Captain America 193 through 200, the third annual as well. Just really amazing stuff. But that Bicentennial Battle story, an incredible 80-page story that uh, really was a wonderful salute to the country in the Kirby style. 50% off, it's just $37.50. There's Superman Blue, Volume 1. Dan Jurgens, Ron Friends, Carl Kiesel, Stuart Immerman, another great buddy. These are these are wonderful creators, man. Scott Eden is on this book. David Michelini, Tom Grumman, Luis Simonson, John uh, Bogdanov, Sean Chen. They're all in here. It includes stories from Superman 122 through 125, The Adventures of Superman 545 through 547, Action 732 through 734, Superman the Man of Steel 67 through 69, and the ninth Superman Annual. You know, this was back when it was weekly and everything was happening. It's 42% off, just $14.49 at InStockTrades.com. Check out more of the great deals waiting for you at InStockTrades. Again, don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping. Great books at great prices, InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon Unconventional today. More great conversation coming in just a day or two. Uh, I've got a couple of these unconventionals that I wanted to release again to kind of give you that feel of San Diego Comic-Con during Comic-Con week. Whether you're there... This might be good road music for you as you're traveling to the show. Or also, uh, you know, again, if you feel left out, don't worry. All access at Word Balloon Unconventional. There are always seats available, as you know. And uh, don't worry, there's no special passes needed. Everybody is welcome through the red ropes. I hope you enjoyed this. Again, more Word Balloon Unconventional coming in a day or two. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2018.